there will be no real non-controlled currency in the world. For your banks. Bitcoin is punk rock. Deal with it. You split, we bankrupt you. So do you use Lightning wallets to pay for things or not? No. Bitcoin Cash would be seen as more of a threat to the United States hegemony than Bitcoin. Miles Town, what's your favorite kind of money? Um, Bitcoin Cash. Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Cash podcast following bitcoin cash on its rise to global reserve currency this is episode number 50 man it's flown by i can't even believe we're at 50 episodes celsius collapse and no dev featuring josh elthorpe today's monday the 13th of june 2022 i'm your host jeremy jet is doing the producing and our guest today is a bitcoin cash all-star a mega og an infrastructure, you know, uh, developer, no developer. He's now into gaming. He's worked at Coinbase. He's done a bit of everything, and we're going to talk about all of it. Welcome to the show, Josh. How do you get into Bitcoin? Thanks uh, for having me, Jeremy. Uh, so let's start there. So I got into Bitcoin because I wanted an uh, alternative to the U.S. dollar, and I read the white paper when it first hit. And I was really intrigued, but honestly, I didn't get into it right away. Like I was in the middle of a move to California. I was getting a new job. I was switching states. So I kind of shelved it for a few years and then came back in um, around, you know, 2013, 2014 timeframe back in more seriously and really just looking for a decentralized peer-to-peer cash more than anything else. And I wanted something where it was just between me and the other person and that I wasn't uh, supporting a currency that was being manipulated and was funding a bunch of things that I didn't agree with. So that is to say, and uh, you didn't actually say, it, but you read the white paper in 2009, right? That's, yeah. That's, oh yeah. That's, that's great. Like the earliest person. Well, I guess if you're only seriously involved in uh, a bit later on, then you, you haven't made it in there as the number one, you know, OG slot at the moment is Marcelo Fleischer from like early 2010, uh, oh, not at all. You know, it's like it. I went in and I remembered installing the software. Oh, I you remember, actually installed it as well. I remember installing it. I remember seeing if I could pass in the CPU mining flags uh-huh. and I turned it on and the software appeared to work and I kicked the tires for like an hour that day when the software was launched and then snoozed on it for a long period of time. So, so I didn't did get any Bitcoin. use those you, bills. You did it was it. just, uh, I, I wasn't a part of the community quite yet. Okay. All right. Well, that's, mm, that's kind of like half credit, you know, if you'd got, if you'd mined a block or you'd got some actual Bitcoin, cause like, I guess there's no, there's no exchange or anything. You couldn't have bought it anywhere, or I guess no. you could have asked someone to send you some. Uh, I mean, I bet you that laptop did mine something, but right. I, I don't know what, and I don't like, yeah, that was ages ago. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Very, very cool though. Very, very cool. Like 2009. That's just, that's like the prehistoric days, you know, that's the, the very early stuff. So then when you were getting into it though, did you already have a, cause some people come into it, right. And they, they're missing sort of different pieces of it. Some people come in with the tech background and then they have to add the economics. Some people come in with the economics. Some people come in with the libertarian sort of philosophy, which parts of those did you already have and which parts came with Bitcoin or was it none of them? 
so I definitely came in with the technical side. Um, and so I was always interested in, um, yeah, I've been programming since I was a little kid. And so that side, I was very well versed. It was easy for me to kind of like understand what they were trying to do. But I did have to catch up more on the economics side. Um, it's not that I hadn't done any economics work. It's that the economics were always centered around the dollar or around the existing currencies that I had used, um, you know, the euro, yen, things like that. I hadn't really read about more just high level theory about money and the, uh, the movement of money. And I hadn't really read a lot uh, from the economists yet. And so a lot of it was things that I had learned from friends or family or school. And so that was a little bit more my rabbit hole was getting more into the economics and trying to understand whether or not this actually could work. Yeah, I mean, to this day, I'm still on this show, like spouting off all the time about here's how economic works. And this is how like Bitcoin works and stuff. I feel, I mean, that's kind of okay. I sort of feel because it is like on the bleeding edge. Like nobody knows, like it's literally, we're running a live sort of economic experiment. So I feel I can be as qualified as anybody, but I just think it's bizarre because I uh, got into Bitcoin, you know, mostly while I was at university and uh, I lived with, several other housemates and two of those guys were studying economics right and they were studying the so-called ppe degree politics philosophy and economics right which is like you know three three quarters of the bitcoin sphere just missing the 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 coding part which was the part that i was doing right and i was loving it i was like this is great this is going to kick off this is going to be amazing and they were giving me all this stuff no but looked in my textbook and page 25 it says that you need to have an inflationary currency and all this stuff right and i was just like you're you're, i don't know what garbage is in your books but uh it's working they they say that because of their worldview right people that say that you need uh, uh inflationary currency believe that you can gauge economic performance just off of the gdp and yeah, GDP, right. if you're only gauging whether or not the economy is healthy over sales and overall activity, then the GDP is all that matters to you. And so you want everyone to have an incentive to spend because then you just add inflation and you know that your money is going to be worth less tomorrow. That incentivizes people to spend their currency, which then inflates the GDP and makes it look like the economy is, is happening in a better way. But it doesn't, I don't think that's the whole story. In fact, I think that that's what's led to a lot of the problems the world has today is looking at it from that short-sighted perspective. Yeah, and it's very strange because when you, yeah, when you're trying to sort of discuss something with with someone like that who who they already have their like preset beliefs, uh, like, because yeah, a couple of those guys, they just, they because they'd read it in a book and they'd been told it by their economics professors that was the truth, which was very ironic because we were at university and the whole point was to just, you know, question your assumptions and everything. Like it's definitely a bad university professor that comes in and sort of gives the impression of, I know all the answers. And I mean, this is a bit of a side tangent, but I guess it just depends what, not only on the teacher, but I feel like also different fields are different like that. Like in my experience, you know, university teachers or just teachers in general, high school teachers, whatever of, for instance, languages are very open to, being questioned by their students because usually it's like i'm a native speaker from Mm -hmm. china so if you want to chat chinese with me let's do it and if i'm wrong well i'm not gonna be wrong very often because i'm a native speaker whereas something else that's a bit more sort of uh orthodoxy based like Mm -hmm. economics like politics um you know it's going to be less like that and yeah maybe more the sort of engineering and the technical ones 
unfortunately science is kind of you know drifting the wrong way i feel where uh it depends i don't know some of my mates did science degrees and they were also just a bit too questioning the narrative on on some points which is kind of bizarre but that's the world we live in these days i guess Mm -hmm. all right so let's crack on then with the price first thing uh the market is getting absolutely destroyed at the moment these stats might already be out of date from about half an hour ago i'm pretty sure that uh we're like 128 or something like that (laughs) on the Bitcoin Cash side. I mean, everything's in just crazy free fall right now. A lot of speculation that Celsius is going to be collapsing. Yeah. Uh, They already turned off withdrawals. Binance flat out lied in a tweet saying that they had a backlog of Bitcoin transactions because one got stuck. And it's like, you want me to believe you have one UTXO. That's what yeah. you want me to believe. Either that or you don't know how Bitcoin works. And yeah. you're talking about sequence number based chains, which can't happen on Bitcoin. So yeah. like either way, he was full of shit. Well, I think there's been there's been a lot of uh, a lot of questionable CZ tweets over the years, to be honest. Uh, and yeah. then he was tweeting after that. Oh, it wasn't even me tweeting. It was my assistant. But I bet you didn't notice, guys. Or it's like, what are you doing? What kind of operation are you guys running there? But well, they're the biggest exchange or, or whatever. So all our financial fates rest in their hands. So hopefully they <laughs> clean, clean their act up. Okay. So anyway, it was $131 about an hour ago of uh, BCH. One BCH buys 176, uh, no, 101 BDC buys 176 uh, BCH. Everybody is, of course, uh, retreating into the safety of BDC as that plummets. Everything else plummeting more. This is just... The disaster and i was feeling uh well not great about the market conditions but i was feeling good that i've at least been on this show telling everyone that it's going to be a disaster in a bear market because uh any sort of videos of people saying michael Saylor, mortgage your house and whatever like that's just destroying lives uh yep. at, at this at this stage you know 100 percent. so with your sort of uh electronic cash vision right from the start how do you approach price do you do you speculate in a lot of coins do you have you know a bit of a diversified portfolio how do you manage all that so i i I guess i'm a strange one right is that i believe people should earn their money from work yeah (laughs) holy shit you got to do like something valuable for the world yeah and earn money from it Uh i don't think that traders provide a lot of value to the world yeah just to be very blunt so I'm not interested in doing that all day. I'm not interested in just seeing your price goes up and trying to get my Lambo. Like that doesn't make me feel better as a human being. It doesn't make me feel like I'm improving the world in any way. And I think that a lot of people should really reevaluate about what they spend their time doing to see if they could spend more of their time doing things that are beneficial for the world, for themselves, for their psyche, for their spirit, for whatever it is that's going on in their life, rather than just trying to chase numbers on a screen. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that everybody feel like I spent a, a couple of years on and off trading. And I mean, the whole thing's a, a bit of a scam in the sense of there's all these like random courses and stuff. And not that I ever did any of them, but I'm sure there's not really any insight that you can really get out of a lot of that stuff more than just you're just gambling basically you no, just I got mean, your the, money the market's and- so manipulated i mean if you just look at the big uh you know elephant in the room and tether right and the questionable backing that they've had over their uh, their existence and mm-hmm. how it just so happens that there are run-ups in the price anytime magically there's a bunch of new tethers 
and they want you to believe that someone's going to send someone hundreds of millions of dollars that has been investigated by the SEC, has <laughs> numerous legislations against them, has questionable banking interests, rather than just buying the stuff at a normal, reputable place, right? So there's big question marks there. And when you have a market manipulator, then it's hard to look at it from any sane or logical perspective, because ultimately, they're just triggering the market, whether that's BitMEX popping people's longs and shorts to try to make themselves more money. Uh, it happens all over the industry. Mm. Yeah. And I sort of, I almost feel like sort of when Bitcoin cash succeeds, let's say, you know, it really starts going viral as an actual payment mechanism. That's going to happen almost entirely divorced from the sort of money. It's not like it's going to be rocketing up coin market cap and going, you know, viral through the entire South American population, for instance. It might just be that the market's having a meltdown or doing whatever it's doing with the latest FUD of the week, while Bitcoin cash adoption is just surging. And then and then at some point, the two realities have to kind of coincide, right? And at that point, just like the whole world financial system is just going to get sucked into this uh, vortex of like what what is happening here. But that's that's kind of my intuition or my... I mean, I look at it as that there's competing interests and the the, uh, people that are pumping the price are leaving the payment coins behind, right? Mm. So there are coins that have a much better peer-to-peer cash use case. Right. Obviously, we're all Bitcoin Cash fans. We're on the Bitcoin Cash podcast. Right. But there are a couple of other coins that are in this exact same place that we are, Mm. uh, both in market cap, dropping in the ranks, those types of things. Then it's the ones that actually wanted to be used as money and as cash. What ended up happening is a bunch of money went into Ponzi ish type of schemes through a lot of these DeFi things that were new and people jumped in and thought that they could earn free yield. Yeah. There's no such thing as free yield. The The yield always comes from somewhere. There's no (laughs) fractional lending going on. There's no creation of new money in this crypto world. So if someone's offering you 8% or 10%, that's coming from somewhere. Unless... They're just printing their own token and hoping that yeah. token doesn't devalue as fast as they print it, uh, which is also a th- uh, what many uh, people have done as well, where they think they can like outbeat the the fact that their shitcoin is just trending zero and that they're just issuing more and more of it, right? And you know the exchange tokens are probably the ones that are most to blame for that situation. Um, and they look really hot because a lot of people are using them, but the use cases are questionable. Um, as to whether or not, you know, they have any real value. So if all the payments coins have been pushed down, now, if we took any of the coins that were good for payments and we stacked those in a list, Bitcoin Cash would be at the top of that list uh, when it comes to merchant adoption, uh, wallet ecosystem, register applications, support for things like Purse or BitPay, Lots of compatibility, whether that's PayPal or, you know, these other pseudo crypto integrations that have happened, they Mm. all have Bitcoin cash. So there's no doubt that there's something going on right there. It's just not what the market's valuing during these pump cycles right now. Yeah, well, there's certainly not VC investors showing up with whatever, $300 million and buying up 90% of the Solana supply and then releasing only a tiny sliver of retail and then a few 
people get excited on Reddit and it goes to the I mean, it's the, it's the Ripple playbook. So, yeah. It worked really well for Ripple. Well, I think they're still in the mix somewhere. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have time to follow, follow every coin. I mean, but... yeah, you know, you print a bunch of coins. You only give out a percentage of them. Those people raise the value. You dump on their face. You know, it's, it's a classic money-making pump technique. and dump. Yeah. Many, many, many coins are going to be doing that. And uh, that's why I think fair issuance is, you know, not something that can be um, replicated sidestepped, yeah. right? It has yeah. to have a fair issuance. There are very few coins that have a fair issuance. And by yeah. fair issuance, I means nobody just minted a bunch for free for themselves. So we could take out like 98% of the crypto market list if you have that as a criteria on sound money. Now, Bitcoin, mm. that's sound money by that definition, right? Unfortunately, Ethereum's not. There yeah, was, I was a say. ICO, they had pre-sold, people had tons of coins. Now, great ecosystem happened there. I'm an Ethereum fan on what a lot of things that are happening in that ecosystem. So I don't want to be totally down on them. But the reality is it's not sound money when it comes to, you know, everyone had a fair chance to get that money. Um, even Litecoin would be sounder money than Ethereum, which is sad, right? Um, and then you have Bitcoin Cash, which while being a fork, didn't issue new coins to people that didn't already have coins. So when it came to the semantics of the issuance, it's the exact same issuance that Bitcoin had. Everyone had the exact same chance and continued to mine on the same chance. So I think that that it does qualify as sound money. Same with, you know, Monero. That is nice on this chart. I'm a Monero fan as well. That's sound money. You know, they, they didn't pre-issue Monero. That was proof of work. And yeah, but- so a lot of this proof of stake conversation doesn't talk about the fact that proof of stake isn't really um, sound money. And there's a lot of gaps there that people don't want to admit to. Yeah, well, with those kind of debates about fair distribution, I mean, I'm a big believer in that same idea and also the fact that it's you know better with a proof of work model, particularly for Bitcoin, because, you know, it was the first one ever and nobody mm-hmm. really knew. And like you were saying, you know, people were just mining on their laptops and some people missed out. And so, you know, all that stuff. But it's kind of a question to me as how much of the distribution matters because it's sort of the the ideal of it and the fact that new people will buy into the system because they can appreciate that everyone had a, a like some people will say, okay, <laughs> Bitcoin had its thing back in the day. Ethereum had its thing back in the day. But it's 2022. I'm a new person. I don't care about this initial distribution. That was like some ancient history. There's some sort of angle to that. But I think also at, like at a global scale, buying in billions of people, enough of them need to have that sense that like there was some kind of fairness to this. And the other thing is, okay, well, if we just even setting that aside, I mean, the 2022 people who don't care, they are still impacted by the distribution because then essentially more power in the system is vested in certain groups and if they fuck up or make the wrong decision or manipulate things in their favor then that's going to you know trend the whole coin off the off the wrong way so what kind of is the balance there do you think of the importance of those two so so i think it's critically important that there's fair issuance um and it's tricky because how do you get fair issuance without getting into the realm of identity Right. So most fair issuance schemes, you know, you would think, oh, well, everybody that has some government ID can sign up and will evenly distribute, you know, to no, no, that doesn't that doesn't work because now you have cut out two billion plus people that will not be able to be part of that fair issuance because and then 
the ID system, you don't want to have to do it all by ID. The whole idea is that these things are pseudo-anonymous. It's actually like cash. So why would I need to give out my identity? And so there are a lot of solutions out there trying the identity-based solution. They have some like ICAM that scans your retina and it's like, oh, you're a unique human, right? Um, is not necessarily based off of government-issued identification. Uh, but that has its own uh, you know, drawbacks as well. And so you have to trust the entire chain of who's analyzing that data, right? So um, I, I just find that Bitcoin's issuance scheme was really uh, genius in that the people that actually confirmed transactions for the network were the ones that got rewarded new coins because they, A, they deserve it because they put in the work to do that. And B, because of the way that the hardware investment model works for ASIC, well, for uh, just proof of work in general, they have to be able to spend that capital. And a lot of times that is, uh, they can't just keep the capital, which forces them to distribute which most people don't really think of as like a huge benefit, but it is a huge benefit. They have to pay their power bill. They have to pay their rent. They need to pay for next generation mining equipment. And therefore they're constantly reinvesting into other parts of the ecosystem and or the plant, whether that is their landlord or their power company or wherever it is, the money is, is actually moving around. And as their profits go up and as the network popularity goes up, hopefully, then maybe those upstream services will actually take the crypto directly so that they can avoid just doing it through exchanges. That Those are uh, things that hopefully happen at scale. Right now, it's like, yeah, they just put it on an exchange and then they sell on these exchanges and they don't really have a way to like um, keep it within the local crypto network for all of the payments that they're doing. Ideally, that comes to pass as well, because then the exchanges have less power, the less ability for you to for people to um, identify and regulate the coins. So really, the thing that we should try to minimize is any time that we're actually converting to fiat, whereas a lot of people in the space are lost and think that the goal is to get to more fiat rather than to stop using the fiat. Um, and I think that's a confusion in the market that only gets remedied over time. Yeah. Yeah. Only, only very, very painfully. And definitely, I just think people don't, don't appreciate Satoshi enough. Just the fact that just everything fit together, everything, it was almost perfect, except for the block size limit. That was a one little crack, but otherwise it was like, yeah, the way that mining just, you know, yeah. A, a proof of stake system. I often think people think, okay, proof of stake is better because somebody invented it later than Satoshi, but it's actually the other way around. If proof of yeah. stake had been better, Satoshi would have invented proof of stake and that well, would have been- Proof of stake always existed. Proof yeah. of stake has always existed. It wasn't new. Thing, yeah. Proof of stake isn't new. There was a bunch of holes yeah. and the new things in proof of stake are fixing problems with proof of stake. So things like um, you know, weak subjectivity, right? So proof of stake, I can't prove between two blockchains, which one's the correct one without talking to someone else? Yeah. Which means that if I get my internet cut off, I can't tell what chain tip is. I can't even pretend to do an offline transaction because the data is just flat out not reliable for me to do an offline transaction because I don't know uh, what which ledger is actually even correct. 
if I have multiple potential ledgers. And that can include full rewrites, technically, if there's collusion between the validators. And then the validators have zero incentive to stay protecting that network because, okay, I, I stake all my coins, right? Well, that's great. I'm going to want to protect the network while my coins are at risk because they could get slashed or some other thing could happen, right? But if I want to divest from that network, I literally unstake my coins. I move all my coins to another network and whatever security I was providing is gone in one second flat. And there's nothing that keeps you there except for the potential of profit, which means that you're a profit chaser, not a coin backer, which means any coin that hopefully will get you more profit for your stake would be a higher incentive for you to move rather than defending any investment you had in a particular coin. This is this is just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like if I'm wanting to, to, to use the currency, I want to know that the people that are validating the transactions can't just bail at a moment's notice and go and back something else and leave me high and dry. But in proof of stake, that's the design. Yeah, you see a lot of stuff in proof of stake with uh, Ethereum especially. They, they kind of have this weird rationalization where they sort of ran the numbers and they have, this guy, Justin Drake, he has these like, I don't know where he got these calculations, but it's like, it's 20 times more economically efficient. I don't know how they got to this magic number where it's like, if we have $100,000 in proof of stake versus $100,000 of mining equipment, like it's 20x as hard to attack. But it's like, dude, that's nothing to do with reality, right? You're $100,000 of ETH, a banker can just print up $100,000 a buy. But the fact of the matter is, no matter who you are, you can't just magic out of the ether all these ASICs, right? There's a physical amount of silicon chips in the world and getting them all in the same place and setting them up right is not a trivial thing to do and not something you just get rid of on a moment's notice either. So yeah, they kind now, of don't- I want to be clear. When I talk about proof of work, hashing is one way to do proof of work, right? I don't care what that lock into work is, right? If someone can find a more comp, uh, energy safe way to prove you did work, right? Without a doubt, without requiring a trusted entity, then they should do that, right? I'm not saying that it's good that we waste all the power, but the power is not being wasted in my mind. It yeah. is implementing a proof of work system where I trustlessly can validate that someone spent time and effort on this answer without even knowing who they are and knowing that they had a real expense, right? Whatever that is, as long as it can be provable, not forged, um, then, and, and that's what was so special about doing it with the hashes, right? Is because you did it in mathematics. You didn't do it with signed authorities or validated people that say something happened. You can literally just run the math and be like, oh yeah, the odds of this or this. And wow, yeah, someone spent a lot of time figuring that one out. Yeah. And there's no question, but people like to conflate the proof of work piece with the energy use piece, right? That isn't the fundamental question. The fundamental question is how do I prove that something happened trustlessly through mathematics where it can't be faked? Right now, the only thing we found that really works is this hash. And because the only thing we found that works is the hash, we have the power problem attached because we need to run all these hashes. But it's not a fundamental problem of this idea that you need to prove work. It's how we've implemented the proof of the work. 
proof of stake doesn't prove work. So find me another proof of work. Show me another way I can prove something happened that uses less power. That to me would be innovative. Whereas proof of stake is punting on the problem, just being like, no, we're gonna have trusted validators. They're just gonna sign off on shit. Yeah. And you either trust them or they get slashed and we have all these side effects of things that'll happen to bad actors because um, they have to do that because the protocol isn't as complete. Yeah, it doesn't all tie together. And I don't know, whatever research papers they're writing up to convince themselves that like they've got it sorted. Well, I, I still think it's one of the major reasons that BTC is still beating out ETH because just people understand like, look, there's just... This is just something not right about this whole proof of stake malarkey. I don't, you know, I, I don't so, know. We, I, I think there's on. a lot of reasons that BTC still is um, the safe haven for people that are in the Ethereum ecosystem, as we've just seen, right? We had a lot of people bail out of the ETH ecosystem and yeah, everything went down, but BTC went down the least, right? Most people divested back into BTC as their safe haven over ETH. Well, why would they do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons they would do that, right? Um, from a security perspective, um, from just how long the coin's been around and just the, the, the market uh, confidence kind of assumption yeah. that Bitcoin is going to hold its value. But it's more than that. It's, there's a lot of scams in Ethereum. It's a lot of crazy nonsense happening, whether that's NFTs or DeFi that are not sustainable. A lot of people have gotten hurt in those environments. And when people get hurt in those environments, they're not going to keep their money there, especially in a downturn. So if they were in a coin and they were trying to do some things that were like more speculative and that coin starts to plummet, they're going to go elsewhere. They're not going to stay in that coin because they knew they were in a volatile place because they were chasing that number goes up and the higher returns are always in the riskier investments. So they knew it and then they bailed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, spot on, spot on. Okay, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta move on. We got a lot of slides to get through. Next one is the uh, transaction graph. So I look at this on every show. It's about forty k again this week for BCH. No, no big action uh, here or there, but it's always the opportunity for the guests to talk about blockchain metrics. I mean, especially given that you're a bit more involved in the in the dev stuff. How much credit and faith do you put into this stuff? Is this just astrology for? crypto people or is it so very I think valuable? for some coins it's astrology right yeah. because if they don't have a fee then it's astrology mm-hmm. right because then they can make it the numbers look whatever the fuck they want right if there's no fee then it costs nothing for them to generate fake transactions if they have extremely small fees then you could have extremely garbage transactions and um so i do like fees that are subsent but that doesn't mean that I want them always as low as possible. I don't think that is something to strive for. I want to strive for affordable, but also gives us a denial of service that, uh, you know, protection from people spamming the network with like literally zero value transactions. And so there, there is a balance there. Now, what's interesting about this graph to me, right, is Bitcoin is at its block size limit most of the time, Right. So yeah, the transaction graph's never going to go that much higher. And it looks real stable. And the reason it's stable is because it's always backlogged and queued and everybody's just sitting there waiting. And then like, yeah, it looks stable on a graph, but everybody had a bad experience. Then on Bitcoin Cash, the block sizes are never full. And so 
the fact that it's consistent means there's actual users. That's real trap. That's like the real transactions. And yeah, and then we look at the kind of drop, even in the market drop. So you look at the usage between, say, February and May, and it was pretty flat, but a little higher than what we've seen in June. However, in June, it didn't drop off that much. Go take a look at OpenSea volume right now and take a look at what the drop off looks like between May and June over the last couple of days. And this little like 20% drop I'm seeing on this graph, maybe 30, I don't know. That's nothing compared to what I've seen on most of these other volume graphs. And so to me, this is actually a really bullish sign that even in a really downturned market, there's still people using Bitcoin Cash, without a doubt. And we're seeing that that adoption is not necessarily people speculating. This is the people that are just using it as money, boring money. Like I just went to the store and I opened up my phone and I paid for something boring, not exciting. Like I don't get excited when I pull out my wallet and pay $5 for a sandwich. That's not exciting. Paying for something with crypto should not be exciting. It should be boring as hell. Should be like walk into a store. I want to buy this thing. Oh yeah, here's some stuff. And it's just like what you needed to get them to get the thing. It's not special. It's not like exciting. It should be boring. And uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to the best marketing or like excitement factor that you should use the coin. But honestly, good money should be pretty boring. It should always work. Should always be about the same fee. The experience on, you know, how quickly it confirms should be about the same. It should be really consistent. And in a lot of ways, Bitcoin Cash has been extremely consistent, except for price, right? So price has been the that fatal thing because of the market manipulation where everything else is pretty steady. The experience for merchants, for wallet adopters, for the day-to-day users has been actually really good. I've never had a Bitcoin Cash transaction fail, period been using it since the day it launched and (laughs) it works. I've never had a day of downtime. I've never had a day that I had to pay more than a penny in fee. Never had a day where my wallet decided to not work. Just worked every day, even during the contentious splits that happened. The stuff still worked. That was a lot of FUD. Oh, they split and this happened and this happened. But when I went and paid for something, did it work? Did it still use the network successfully? Yes, 100%, every single time. And most coins don't have that, especially in the contentious states that we've gone through over the last several years, whether that's the eCash split or the BSV split or the number of attackers that came and were just trying to you know, throw FUD on Bitcoin Cash. The fact that it has never broken and not been functional is actually a huge thing. Yeah, and I think something that people don't understand as well too is you often get people on the BDC side who thought either just now as a kind of remnant of that idea or originally the 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 narrative was that the smartest devs were all on the BDC side, right? Which was complete nonsense, but that was what was uh, pushed. And so then the idea was, okay, well, BCH must have like the bad tech and everything like that. But that's a complete delusion because BCH, despite being so much smaller and stuff, is just integrated with with everything. And the reason is because tech teams everywhere just plug into it and it works and they don't have to 
so that's about with it you know i think that the reason that that happens is there are different types of developers right yeah. you have your more pragmatic developers that want to solve real world problems you have your more um educational uh type of research oriented developers that care about like perfect solutions and correctness and all of those and then there's a union between those and those are the ones that i think are the most valuable in the crypto space the ones that aren't too pragmatic, but not too much research focused. They need to understand that real solutions need to ship. And there is such thing as good enough and understand what MVPs are. And as a developer, you got to look at what actually has shipped and the benefit to the user, right? So I look at Bitcoin. They haven't shipped a single feature I've cared about in more than five years. In fact, they shipped multiple things I thought they didn't need. They didn't want. <laughs> and they added features I thought were uh, regressions. Whether, up, and yeah. that was earlier, like with RBF, because I think listening to Peter Todd was a bad idea. Yeah. So I think RBF was a bad idea. I think that SegWit, most users have not benefited from SegWit. The block size increase that it, it did give in, uh, was illusory because... SegWit transactions are bigger than regular Bitcoin transactions, so they take more box space. And most people that are technical understand that you really shouldn't use SegWit unless you're trying to use it for the Lightning Network and open and close transactions. Weirdly enough, one of the few things that Luke Dasher Jr. has correct, one of the few, right? SegWit transactions don't save block space. They were designed to help with Lightning adoption, which didn't really happen yet. Then Taproot. No one cares. Literally no one fucking cares. Like this is the most useless upgrade I've ever seen. So like it doesn't help a user in any way. And it's like, yeah, now all I see is the path of the script that got executed. It has a minor privacy implication. You're adding more address format. I mean, honestly, it was a terrible upgrade. It was just a bad, bad solution. So we look at what BTC has done empirically and it hasn't ossified. No, it did not ossify. This is a root. This is this is not correct. People want to say, oh, BTC doesn't do changes. Lie. They do do big changes. There were two very substantial changes in the last five years, the last two software up soft fork upgrades. Those were giant changes, not, oh, we don't change the protocol. So when they come back to the one megabyte size limit and then they want to claim some kind of like protocol correctness thing or argument, it doesn't hold water at all if you look at it from any lens that makes you know logical sense. So for me, then we look at Bitcoin Cash and we look at what actually got implemented. Was I happy with every change in Bitcoin Cash? No. However, every single one had a reason why it was happening for the user. So when we first launched Bitcoin Cash in 2017, we needed a different difficulty adjustment. We needed that. There were a lot of people that thought Bitcoin Cash would become Bitcoin and that the original difficulty adjustment would work. And they argued with the ABC team about, it's no, we're going to be the Bitcoin. We are going to be Bitcoin. And he wrote the EDA, which obviously was a mistake in hindsight, right? Hindsight's 2020. But we needed that difficult, different difficulty adjustment algorithm. And when the, DA, when the EDA hit, it got gained by the miners. And the miners printed some extra coins. And it was not a good solution. And that was a mistake. 
And we eventually rectified it with the DAA work that happened, the assert work that happened, which I actually was really a big fan of, but led to the eCash split, right? And uh, so we have um, certain things that could have definitely gone better on Bitcoin Cash. But then we look at some of the other upgrades, they make a lot more sense. Wait a minute, we have larger script integers supported in the scripting system. We reactivated the original op codes. We've made a lot of the scripting tier of Bitcoin function better than it's ever functioned. Whether that, and there's still some restrictions that we have on overall script size and op code limit, but we're making safe forward progress to extend those scripting capabilities. We also jumped to eight meg, which I thought was good for the first jump on the block size. Then we went to 32, which has satisfied everything we've needed thus far. But I do believe that we need to continue that scaling roadmap. Like I'm really excited about the 256 meg block testing that's happening now. Not because I think we need 256 meg blocks. Let's be very clear about that. But a lot of people say that Bitcoin Cash has a block size limit. It doesn't. Show me in the code where it enforces a static block size limit because it doesn't. You set it. You set it in your node. So if everybody decides tomorrow to run 64 meg blocks, Bitcoin Cash is 64 meg blocks. So this idea that, oh, they only went to 32. No, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's not how it's implemented in the code. We can extend the block size and have larger blocks if we want to. But that doesn't mean our nodes are ready for it doesn't mean that they've been tested adequately for it. doesn't mean that when you actually bump to those sizes, there aren't going to be unforeseen consequences that we need to be proactive about. And so I think all the teams should be ready to get to 256 meg blocks by the next hard fork. I think that that is like, I want to be able to, to know that we have tested the implementations and that if we do need to scale rapidly, that there aren't going to be a lot of breakages that happen. And the reason I think 256 is such a key milestone is that that sets us over a thousand TPS, thousand TPS. That's gonna that that's gonna do us well for a long time, right? Like that yeah. buys us enough time that we can look into even more mature scaling solutions to do larger size blocks if necessary. It also buys us a lot of time to let layer two developers do what they want to do because we can't stop them. It's permissionless and decentralized. And I'm all for quality L2s happening as long as I can still use L1. So I think there's something to be said that at 256 megs, the ecosystem's going to change a little bit. What we think is good for layer two versus layer one may change a little bit. Things like lightning, while I'm not a fan of lightning, they originally needed like 133 meg blocks to actually scale with the lightning network. Technically, that means that Bitcoin Cash would be ready to do that today where Bitcoin isn't. These are big things on paper, and I think that they, um, that's what shows that our de developers are capable, is not the shiny new thing, which is what I think a lot of other blockchains are trying to do, but actually high-quality engineering to increase our throughput, reliability, and speed. So double spend proofs, I thought, was really a great addition um, because it showed our technical you know, chops. We created a new spec. There's proofs, we can tell whether these double spends are happening and it made zero comp transactions a lot safer. Not perfect, but a lot safer, especially for small value transactions. These are empirical improvements, like these are real improvements where Bitcoin hasn't had a real improvement in a very, very long time. 
Yeah, and I so I, I'm, I am bullish. It's just an issue of marketing and getting that information out to people and explaining how we think through these problems differently. And Jonald used to do a great job writing up stuff that does that, but he hasn't been writing as much. So we need more people to like get the message out there that we all have digested over the last five years, but these newcomers haven't seen yet. Yeah, we can definitely improve a lot on that. I mean, I think as as with regards to all that, definitely you want to have better scaling and and stuff kind of on the roadmap and always churning away just because it's a case of it's it's like a momentum thing you don't want it to stop and everyone okay it's all good for the time being and then when everybody you know that's a classic of engineering that non-engineers maybe don't you know would have a harder time getting it's not like uh or I guess it's like any manufacturing or any chain, there's a lot of momentum. Once you shut the plants down, it's going to be more expensive to start it back up. Or people have moved on. This guy has quit. This guy is working on something else. The yeah. lady who used to know the secret source of this part, she didn't oh. document it properly and get back to a mess, right? One thing I've noticed about our economy, right? Whether it makes sense or not, things happen in these like waves, and it may make no sense, but the wave will keep these crazy ideas afloat, like Beanie Babies, right? So you had Beanie Babies, people traded Beanie Babies for a lot of money, and they were kind of trading them as collectibles, and like, that was crazy. We see what happened with the NFT scene, people buying stuff, like, literally JPEGs with no roadmap, no anything, no, no promises, anything for lots and lots of money because of momentum. All of a sudden, it starts coming in. People think this is cool. Everybody starts jumping in, and it, like it snowballs. That's what was happening to Bitcoin in 2014. And then people snuffed it out. How dumb is that? I mean, the level of dumb is like it's so hard to create the economic tsunami of some new thing coming in, right? Really hard. And then it happened. And they put a stone wall in front of it. And then they wondered why crypto didn't take off. It's just like mind boggling to me is you killed the adoption from Steam. You killed the adoption for Microsoft. You killed adoption across a huge swath of services. And for what? Literally for what? Like even a modest block size increase to like four megabytes, eight meg modest little increase that has nothing to do with decentralization would have prevented all of those problems. A very basic compromise would have kept all the businesses onboarded. Honestly, you'd probably be able to spend your Bitcoin at every single store that you frequent today had they not made that mistake then. And I don't think it was a mistake. I think they did it on purpose. And yeah, so it's yeah. hard for me to back that community. It's like we could have had peer-to-peer -peer cash for the world and they stopped it. But we're going to run I can't it back. Really excuse that. We're we're doing it. You know, I I was thinking, I was talking, I think uh, to someone about this the other day, that I I think we are we are going to run it back, and this is where it's such a unique chance in history. This you never get this chance. How many other things in the world was it like the counterfactual? But it's actually going to happen. The community is now stable. Pretty much everyone's on the same point. Active addresses on BCH is about where it was in 2014. In, in BDC, okay, the dynamics is different. You know, the original Bitcoin didn't have to contend with a tether that was at $73 billion. All right, there was a few things that has changed, but 
over the next two or three years, we're going to get the history counterfactual of what happens if the big blockers ran the show instead. And we're going to see. I personally believe it's going to go like gangbusters, but uh, you know, we're going to hit time. Will time will tell, right? But we're going to well, we're going to see. When people complain about big blockers, right? They're taught they they always extrapolate to well, well gigabyte size blocks will do this. It's like, dude, who the fuck is talking about gigabyte? Like, no, no one's even talking about that. You're 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 literally just claiming straw men to make yourself look good. If we would have just been able to compromise to like a very small increase, the train would have kept going and every single community in Bitcoin would have been satisfied. The yeah. small blockers, we weren't asking for gigabyte size blocks. We were asking for enough that we didn't have full blocks. And then we could have satisfied the lightning devs. Now, do I think lightning's a good design? No, I do not. But they could have built on those slightly larger blocks and it would have been better for them. Empirically, just like they needed that for their technology. It would have kept the fee levels down. It would have led to increased adoption. There was just so much that was obvious that was um, when you looked at the FUD, it was like, wait, there, there are people out here that really want to convey that Bitcoin doesn't work, can't be money, and that the only thing it's useful for is sitting on an exchange or in your cold wall. But there was a, there crazy. was a, yeah, I mean, there was a good sort of, uh, there was a good upside, I, I think. Obviously, yeah, it was horrible. And yeah, we could have taken over the world by now. But I sort of sometimes feel like, look, if it hadn't gone down this way, if we'd managed to get a block size increase in or, or whatever, maybe Bitcoin needed this sort of purifying fire that it's got that it's got to now. Because if that had yeah. happened, maybe there would have been just a, a different you know spanner in the works that would have... It's kind of almost amazing how it has happened that there's now Bitcoin, BCH, BSV... Uh, and eCash, and now everyone has got what they want, and all four of those communities seem relatively like we're doing it the way we want to do it. And if you don't like the way those communities are doing it, just like piss off to one of the other options. You know, wouldn't there have still been a split? Would so, momentum have carried? No, them? no. So splits are a lot easier when there's less value involved. That's true, right? Splitting some small coin and being like, "Yo, I don't like what you did. You're failing. Fuck you. I'm gonna go do something else." It's a hell of a lot easier than like, we're the number one market cap coin and it's accepted everywhere and we're going to go and tell them to fuck off. There's a world of difference there, right? Like the number of users is sticky. Like if Bitcoin Cash had a higher price and a lot more use, then I think it would have prevented some of the splits, period. But people use the excuses uh, of low price or adoption or whatever to fuel that, oh, we need to do this thing differently. And they use that to fuel FUD to break off from the main community. And you look at the prices of all of those communities now, and they're all shit, all shit. And and like, I'm not going to pretend that like, I'm happy there were splits. No, that was really destructive. And do I do, I really want some of those people back in the BCH community that were, you know, toxic, aggressive, or, you know, uh, just mean to people. No, I don't, but I can't control that either. Money's supposed to be good for everybody. I'm not supposed to like fucking everyone that uh, likes BCH. Some people are supposed to use BCH and have a worldview that's different than me and hate everything that I, I like. And that's fine. That's what money is. It's just a tool between people. It's not a mutual agreed mental framework. It's just money. 
So do I wish that all those people had not split off? Yes. Do I wish that we could have kept even toxic people, bad people? Yes, because that's what it's going to take to make money that works. I want 7 billion people to use the money. So what? I'm going to just like say, oh, yeah, 7 billion, but not this guy because I don't like him. And this guy, no, man, he goes and lies a lot and talks a lot on Twitter. And I'm not going to. No, I'm just going to use my money. So, and uh, everybody seems to want to have these excuses for why it's a good idea to split. Truth is, is Craig wanted has been planning to steal coins from the BSV ecosystem from day one. That was very clear. And let's... he forked off because he couldn't get his way on BCH, and he wanted to figure out how to get his hands on Satoshi's coins. And let's not Period. pass over this opportunity to remember just for a moment, Gigamegs. Oh yeah, Gigamegs. <laughs> Nothing wrong with gigamegs. All right, let's so, let's. Anyway, uh, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah, we got it. We got it. We, we're almost nearly an hour in. We're only on like a slide two, you know. But that's all right. We we do we do we do a long one. We're under no time. This is episode fifty special blockbuster episode, the gigamegs <laughs> episode. The gigamegs okay. episode. All right, all right. Next one, we got sending USD. Not making major moves. I think this is really important just to note for everyone because if the price is collapsing and everyone's in a panic but sent in USD is not making big moves. That means you know that uh, it's like the marginal uh, price setting action is in effect, right? Everybody, usually the, the send USD is rocketing up when the price is also rocketing up and everyone's getting excited. We're all getting rich. But when the price is crashing, most of the hodlers are just like, oh shit, we got to sit this one out. And just that huge layer of like retail people it's just it's just getting out of there on Coinbase or whatever, but the coins are not actually moving around on that on the actual chain. You know, activity is uh, is low there, so I take that as quite a quite an important indicator uh, tied into our first thing today, which is the Celsius uh, blow up. So what happened was this company, which I'd honestly never heard of until today, basically, uh, is just a scammy sort of Bitcoin. Well, yield. I mean, they hold point. Eight percent of the world's Bitcoin. Oh shit! Okay, well, like I believe it. And like you should have heard of them. They 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 hold a decent amount of well, they held a decent amount of Bitcoin. Well, it's like uh, I know there's this one BlockFi, and I think they're in the same category, right? It's this sort of like deposit your Bitcoin with us, and we'll get you some yield on it. And exactly how or where this yield is coming from seems a bit fuzzy but essentially the point is you're giving it to them and then they're doing some staking on a DeFi protocol or whatever instead of you doing the staking they're gambling with your money on uniswap and all of the dexes and wherever they can get yield and they aggregate that for their customers yeah exactly and so they just announced today celsius network is pausing all withdrawals swap and transfer between accounts Acting in the interest of our community is our top priority. Of course it is, guys. Our operations continue and we'll continue to share information with the community. So basically, that, that's just the sign. You know when one of these goes up in crypto, it's like it's well, you already over. It. You, you saw his tweet from two days before that, right? He was trolling someone about, uh, what are you questioning? Have we ever turned or... off withdrawals? Why are you spreading FUD? And then they turned off withdrawals. Classic, classic crypto. So as... As the listeners should all know, and as I want to reiterate, because I just always have to make it so clear because every show might be somebody's first show listening, you know, there's no bailouts in crypto. It's not your keys, not your coins. Get your coins off exchanges. If you don't know where the yield is coming from, 
you're the yield and just this kind of shit happens all the time and it's just a new crop of people that are in the twitter threads in the reddit threads am i gonna get my coins back you bastards what have you done switch back on the withdrawal funds are i'll be safe. honest what is i wish bullshit? nobody ill will i hope that they do figure it out and then they can make their customers right and that everybody is blowing this out of proportion. I hope people get their money back. Now, do I think that necessarily is going to happen? Probably not. But we should always be hoping for the best. You know, I find in crypto, a lot of times people are just like, oh, I told you so. You've, but no, these people are really hurting. You know, there's a lot of people that are going to lose real money and they're going to be less likely to look at crypto as a safe competitor to USD, even if it's another product because of their experiences here. Yeah, it hurts the ecosystem as a whole. That's that's mm-hmm. definitely the case. And so, yeah, we're sort of trying to fight, spread, you know, get the the fine line there where we basically need to educate people and so they get the message and they understand all these different things and they can avoid this kind of bullshit, but it's only going to happen once essentially a majority of the planet has internalized all these ideas. That's that's kind of the only way out of this. So apparently these uh, guys, Celsius, they were the largest holder on uh, MakerDAO, which is a DeFi protocol, basically where you can put in your money and like borrow money out of it, I think is sort of the way it works. So 17,000, nearly 18,000 wrapped Bitcoin were in there uh, and that liquidates at $22,584 according to this uh, calculation I saw. That might not be totally accurate, but the general idea is them going bust and oh, we don't have the money or whatever the hell they've done is then going to ripple out onto ethereum and then people were selling that and then that was triggering another thing and that's why we're now in this well, you situation can't get where crypto is free yields from bitcoin right yeah proof of work right exactly there weren't yeah. free coins issued to somebody that can give them away so when you go to an exchange and you get your yield or like you go and do an earn campaign and they give you a little bit of free crypto dude that that, that crypto was printed out of thin air they gave you nothing. They gave you like a ledger entry. There was no work. There was no nothing. And so if someone's promising you a return on Bitcoin, right? There's nothing that's giving them actual Bitcoin other than mining. So then they're going to the shit coins, playing, you know, the, the, the markets as much as they can, and then converting back to Bitcoin to get you your yield. And so it's risky for them. Uh, there's a, there's a gonna, they're going to be in a lot of systems that are not as secure in order to try to get you the rates that you're looking for. Because yeah, 8% sounds great. Yeah, and then you have maybe in some of these, you have some VC investors or some outside people who are like, oh, it's all going on. And then their money is the one getting sucked away in the system, but they don't really realize that until later. But they're the first ones with the insider knowledge who do grab the stash and retail gets left holding the bag. So it's just, yeah, it's just kind of the way it always goes. But ironically, we're seeing it play out, <laughs> uh, you know, in both directions too, because Michael Saylor is now inches from hitting his own liquidations after telling everyone. He's the, the only one I house. hope gets liquidated. <laughs> I think Honestly, that's out of everybody sentiment. on this planet, I really hope he gets liquidated. <laughs> his, he's, he told people to ruin their lives. <sighs> Yeah, He actively pushed stuff that was absolutely counterfactual to what Bitcoin is. He yeah. wants it regulated. He wants it taxed. He wants it to become a part of the existing financial system. He does not want it to compete with cash. 
He wants it to be just a commodity and a reserve asset. And he told people to mortgage their houses at its all-time high and is a horrible human being. He has been advocating to ruin people. And uh, that's inexcusable to me. It's like, yeah, you do you, man. But don't try to convince a lot of people that because you have money, you knew, know better than them. And advise them to do extremely dangerous stuff to pump your bags. That's just bad. I mean, I just can't respect that position. Like if you want to provide value through software or tooling or things that bring real value to the blockchain ecosystem to try to get people into your point of view and to uh, then that makes sense because you're putting in that effort. But saying that Bitcoin's a storage of energy, it's not. It burns energy and then you make a Bitcoin and store shit. I can't run my toaster <laughs> on a Bitcoin, man. Like that, that's just ridiculous, absurd statements that he makes that makes it very obvious that he doesn't understand Bitcoin at all. And he's heavily invested in something he really doesn't understand. And uh, that would be that's a giant red flag to me for anyone that's invested in his companies. But the ironic thing is that all the people who follow him think he's that he's like on the giga brain like the galaxy brain the next level and he understands it more than anyone and that's why they're like loving his uh hype i guess but it is just empty hype people like to listen to people that have money this is just a behavior i've noticed whether that is a celebrity saying what they like a sports person saying what they like but when someone that has capital and uh tells somebody that doesn't uh, is preaching to the masses I find that the masses like listening to people that have more resources than they do. And he is in that role and he uses that to his advantage to, um, you know, help his bags and hurt others. Yeah, it is sad, but he might get, uh, he might get uh, finished. So he's going to get liquidated. At least I don't know the specifics. I tried reading up a bit on it. Yeah, there's sort of various tranches of coins that he has. And I guess there's legal regulations and there's also different interest rates on some of them and all this kind of stuff. But at 21K, it sounds like the pain starts to kick in a bit for him, which was this previously unthought of level when he was going all in at, you know, whatever it was, 65,000 or something. That's why it was like, no problem, guys. Like there's when, you know, that was close to the previous top. We're not going back down there. We're going to 100K, laser eyes. Well, it was all a sham, of course. And uh, now we are back at those levels. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all a bubble. What am I using it for? Like I I buy the Bitcoin and it sits in my wallet. Like, and I don't, I just don't think that can sustain long-term. Storing your energy, mate. But yeah, it can't. And, and eventually reality just has to intercede, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, not to just like get irritated for no reason, but I recently got into an, uh, like it wasn't, unfor- it unfortunately didn't like flesh out into anything more, but I saw Brian who we've had on the show before was sharing uh, a clip where he was talking to someone who was like, holding is hard. It takes it takes all this energy, and, and we, we have to wake up every day and be committed to making sure that we're not going to the exchanges to sell these coins. And it was like, holding is the easiest fucking thing that you can do. You just forget about it. What do you mean? Yes. The only way holding is hard is if you're a fiat maximalist. And in that, mm-hmm. if that's the case, then just be honest. I don't care. Like, I'm fine with coming across those threads that are like, hey. you idiot, I'm in it for the money. Sure, but at least be honest about it. No, absolutely. Like, dollars have value. 
I can buy, I pay rent, like people value the dollar, whether we think the dollar is trending in the wrong place or whether we like how that's established or managed, it has value. There's no doubt I can go and do whatever I need with dollars, right? And so I don't mind if there's dollar maximalists. That's fine. But I, I, I am full agreement with you. They, they just need to admit it. Don't say you're in crypto to spread crypto. Say, hey, I'm gotten to crypto to pump my bags. And I'm going to sell back into dollars. I plan on going buying myself a new Jeep. Okay, cool, dude. Whatever you need to do. But don't claim to be a crypto maximalist when you're not. I'm gonna I'm gonna defend because I saw this clip as well too. It was by American Hodl on what Bitcoin did, and what's Jed saying is, is accurate. But I'm gonna I'm gonna play defense for him a little bit here. In that, I think what the sort of it is a bit unfortunate that the whole Bitcoin BTC side has has become very cult like and very all this woo woo stuff has been kind of put around it. But there's sort of a seed of truth in there in that the idea is about, okay, gambling in Dogecoin or in whatever other Ponzi coin, that was sort of the point he was making, is just kind of like, is this really the point that society has got to that young people particularly, or anybody really, is just like, shit is hopeless, the system is rigged, so I'm just going to YOLO. It's like our version of just put it all on black at the roulette table, you know? Uh, Maybe it's just this generation's version of that, and that relatively speaking bitcoin would be more of the okay i'm gonna actually save for a future i'm gonna you know plan to have a house and a life in 20 years and not just you know heroin tonight and if i'm dead tomorrow it doesn't matter right so i think that's kind of the idea and i think bitcoin as a as a social movement they are right the whole maxi sort of crowd that bitcoin is essentially a global reawakening in taking personal responsibility and saving for the future and thinking about the systems that we're a part of and who controls, you know, money and so on and so forth. That is all, all true. The only problem is that because they've divorced that from the practical reality of I'm trying to pay someone for this, this thing, instead I'm trying to meditate to hodl to infinity or whatever, because they've diversified those two things. It's now getting a bit out of, yeah, out of touch with reality, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I just wish people would go into crypto and keep letting more people get into crypto and increase their buying power by getting more people into crypto so that the exchange rate against fiat currencies is more favorable. And then spend those coins in a crypto economy where they get more buying power. So you're still a buying power maximalist. But you don't have to touch the fiat again. So use purse and use anywhere that takes crypto directly. And when crypto gets a nice run up and you've made a bunch of, uh, you know, dollars in, um, uh, uh, in your little like money tracking app, you're like, oh, wait, wait, I have a lot more buying power now. I'm not going to go to dollars, but I'm going to go and spend this at crypto friendly merchants. That to me is the step that needs to be taken. And then you get a lot of those benefits of cashing out because you get that extra buying power. But now you're onboarding hopefully more merchants. You're spreading that money throughout the economy. You're doing less at the exchange level, which is less tracking. All of that is just a net benefit, but you still get to be a thing mac- maximalist, right? Like, I want more things. I want all the things. I want to be rich. Just don't go to the US dollars first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, yeah, it's just, it's just so divorced from that. And it's just rather ironic that 
the BCH side that <laughs> is doing those things, is finding those merchants, can actually spend away to the people is not the one that's got the price appreciation that would kind of kickstart that uh, flywheel. But hey, that that's where we are today. All right, next thing is the node development. So I've been promising my listeners for a very, very long time that we would have an actual Bitcoin like develop i don't think we've really had any just well we've had some app devs and different things but somebody who actually knew about the core protocol how it all goes down how this stuff works at the at the mm-hmm. at the base layer and to explain to us about the bitcoin cash point of view from from a node software developer so this is the actual software that mines the coins and sends around the transactions and feeds to all the wallets and different things that people use all the services all the block blocks all that stuff is just built on top of this so this is we're talking here about the actual you know plumbing like the sewer mm-hmm. under the city so to speak um and you uh, are a contributor what to one of those uh, six that operates on on mm-hmm. bch which is uh bchd written in go which is a programming language and i guess you can Tell us uh, why that one was. Uh, so chosen, let me give but, you a little yeah. bit of history first, right? So yep. first yep. off, the the project was created by Chris Pasia. Um, he created uh, Fort BTCD. BTCD was a mature full node written actually uh, in, for the Bitcoin chain and to support Lightning because uh, the hooks that were needed for Lightning didn't exist in Fort. So they wrote uh, BTCD and they extended it and a lot of the development for Lightning happened against BTCD because they were able to implement uh, a couple of advanced features there for, for Lightning development. Chris noticed that there was this other really mature full node for BTC and he, out of the blue, forked it and did the work to get it working on Bitcoin Cash. And that was before I was involved. And I, was, I then saw what he had done. I was like, dude. That's so awesome that you did all this work. How can I help you? So I help on a few different things for BCHD. I do protocol work, um, help do code reviews. I work on the main code for sure, but I also worked on organizing the website with Cameron, uh, Cameron Lee. And we also worked on the Neutrino uh, website. I also do all the release management, Docker images. I've written, uh, I host public infrastructure, I also work on the uh, DNS query tool. Basically, it allows you to discover more uh, Bitcoin Cash nodes and is needed for bootstrapping your node. And so I work on a lot of these different pieces and a lot of it has been pretty exciting. Um, Now, the reason that it was written in Go was the earlier developer did Go, but I've been doing Go for a really long time. I've been writing Go for seven, eight years now. Um, something along those lines. So when I saw that there was a Go code base that was for Bitcoin Cash, I was really excited about it. I also was pretty excited about Copernicus, even though that team ended up fizzling away. Um, But that I thought was actually a pretty cool project as well. And basically being a full node dev, we just make sure that things are stable on the network. So as long as the node is stable, I'm happy, right? So right now we haven't noticed any issues since the last upgrade. Um, everything is stable. We'll probably put out a point release in order to do a new checkpoint just to, to guarantee that uh, the, the latest state changes um, and speed up our fast sync. So you'll be able to fast sync and get to the latest change set much faster than other full nodes. 
But the reason I joined Chris is I don't like really doing a lot in C anymore. Um, and I know there's a lot of C maximalists out there that love doing stuff in C. But honestly, I prefer uh, Go or Rust or some of these other languages to working with C these days. So when, and I was a lot more familiar doing it day to day, uh, both at Coinbase and at AppSara, my previous employer. And so I was just, I was really excited to jump in. There were some peering bugs that I helped fix. And there were a few other issues that I focused on inside of the client. Um, but mainly every time there's an upgrade, anytime I, uh, there is a syncing issue on our public nodes, we're just making sure that we're always correct with the other implementations. So we work on the chip process. You know, there's chips that outline all of the changes that are necessary. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those chips are written with C semantics because two of the primary nodes are in C. And they'll be like, yeah, use this special thing from C. It's like, dude, that's not a spec. It's not a spec. You can tell me to do that if I'm using C, that's great. But I need to know exactly how that's handled in C in the spec in order for me to write those implementations in other languages. So that's one thing I think we could improve on in Bitcoin Cash is making sure that the specs didn't include references to use this C feature. That'd be really dope. Um, but we were able to get around most of those. And um, development is really pretty much me and Chris right now. For a while, Sploit helped and a few other contributors were helping. But right now, it's a pretty lean team on BCHD. So I would really like to, if there's other Go developers, other Gophers out there that want to work on a full node, I'd be happy to walk them through the code, get them up to speed on these different code bases, because we're always looking for more talent to help us out. Because we have a lot of stuff we want to work on, but they're complicated and long deliverables, right? So for instance, right now, when you prune a Bitcoin node, Right. And Tom Zander actually wrote an article about this recently. It just keeps the full blocks for n blocks and then truncates the blocks after. Right. But this isn't actually the pruning that Satoshi described. In fact, none of the nodes do the pruning that Satoshi described. And the pruning that he described was that you could basically uh, remove all of the spent transactions, all the UTXOs that had been fully spent those transaction records inside of the blocks would basically be a no op, uh, nil, right? So you'd basically purge anything that has already been fully processed. And then you could actually keep all the transactions that were relevant to live UTXO, spendable UTXOs. And you'd have every transaction that could be spent still on your pruned node. And so you wouldn't be able to query for historical transactions, but you'd have all of the available to spend transactions, which is not true today uh, in any of the pruning implementations. So tackling things like that or improving Neutrino or going through and improving some of the performance for BCH wallet, um, those things just require a lot of technical competence. And we're always looking for, you know, people that want to solve those harder problems with us. Yeah, because uh, I mean, it's uh, uh, sort of something that I, we definitely need a better solution for in the ecosystem in terms of, and this was something that I had this series BCH builders that kind of fizzled out, but it's still sort of ticking away in my mind that we almost sort of need some kind of uh, Bitcoin cash, you know, dev boot camps or public way of kind of linking up into the ecosystem. Cause if you just stumble across, I mean, cause it could be 
you could go in all sorts of directions, but you could get people in who were 18 years old and they wanted to learn to code. And then you could put them through this, teach them a bit about crypto. And then there'd be people just all over the place who wanted to hire them. And you could have that kind of a system going and therefore, you know, uh, supporting the technical base of the, the ecosystem. And it just, it's more of a, yeah, the coordination and the marketing and the visibility is, is the kind of the lacking part I, I feel, but how do you think the, the actual technical at the protocol level, because that's another area where I think there's a million things we could do better at the protocol level, but I also think that the, you know, marketing and outreach and wallet UI and uh, merchant onboarding and stuff probably needs the help a little more than the protocol dev stuff at, so, at this stage. I don't know. I, I agree with you. In fact, I think that there's only a few things in the protocol that I, I hope get worked on, right? So there's always like minor code improvement, but correctness is king in Bitcoin. So test vectors and making sure that we are returning, you know, validating things exactly the same way that another implementation is validating them is absolutely critical. So junior developers can be a little bit dangerous, um, but with code review, obviously, uh, that's something that can be managed. The features that I'm looking forward to are things like advanced furning, UTXO commitments, um, and scaling uh, for larger block sizes and getting ready to find any bottlenecks that are there to get to 256 megs. Um, those are, I think, the only things we should really be focused on short term for the protocol. Um, now, there are other things that we could try to, to, to tackle on the protocol side, whether that's a new transaction format, et cetera. There's huge, huge community costs to doing those things. So if you, you release a new transaction format, you basically brick every wallet that doesn't know about that format, that can't upgrade to that format. They're just all, they're all done. I also think that things are very complicated uh, depending on the deployment methodologies. So one thing, and this is a little bit off on a tangent, but I want to kind of articulate is there are a lot of Bitcoin maximalists on the wallet side, well, protocol maximalists, I guess is the way to put it, that want everything to always be trustless, like every single query to anyone be trustless. And I don't think that's a good design. And I'm going to explain why I think that, right? So SPV, I'm a fan of SPV wallets, but SPV wallets are fucking slow. SPV wallets take forever to restore. SPV wallets are not amazing. Now, they're trusts. Yes, that makes that part amazing. But everything else about them is clunky. Now, having SPV and being able to have wallets that are SPV wallets and improving those, I think is important, right? And having those true decentralized wallets in certain um, environments may make sense. But I think in most times, federated models work just fine. So BCHD actually offers both, right? You want to connect to the Bitcoin network through BCHD, you can. You just connect to 8333, you're talking to Bitcoin protocol, you can do an SPV client, you can do whatever you want. But we also offer a gRPC endpoint where it's a public API where people can query for blockchain data and get answers like balance for an address, transactions associated with an address and all of that. And you just have a trust relationship with the server that you're talking to. But if you have thousands and thousands of servers all over that are running, reading the blockchain, then you can choose the one that you think is the most trustworthy and just trust that they're not lying to you. 
And that could be your own node, right? So you could bring up a node in the cloud and talk to your own node if you're really paranoid. Or you have a node that you talk to and you and your friends share that you pay for in the cloud that you query for all of that stuff. Those wallets sync instantly. Those wallets don't have delays. If the server you're connected to breaks, you can just select a different federated, in, a different instance, and you're right back. You want to compare the response from several of these federated servers to guarantee that the one you're mainly listening to isn't lying to you. You can do all of these things. So if you look at certain explorers, right? How many times have you gone to a block explorer during an upgrade? And it's broken because you have to trust their backend, right? And they don't let you pick a new backend. But if you go to explore.cache, it's a little bit bare bones, but it lets you pick the backend that gets you the data. So if one node's behind, you select another node. If the something is down, you select another node and you can compare the responses from multiple nodes in the network. And I think this design is way, way more performant and not necessarily sacrificing that much when it comes to trustlessness or decentralization while providing real benefits for speed. So I think that people need to be focused on solutions that are still trustless, right? Meaning that like you don't trust a, a centralized third party. But I think that if there are a thousand third parties you can choose from and those third parties, uh, you can compare the results of what they're telling you, then they are very unlikely to lie to you. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's also sort of a an unanswered uh, problem. And I'm going to tie this into the the next topic a little bit where I wanted to ask you about BCH history because I watched this uh, video that uh, from, I think it was from 2018 with Ryan X. Charles, who is this, mm -hmm. uh, he, he was another Bitcoiner. I did an uh, interview you know. with Ryan. I have a long interview. I chatted with Ryan. I know yeah, him yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Jack, can we just get the next slide up here? And he, so you did this, uh, long, uh, chat with him and basically for the people who are out of the loop and yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, deep down the rabbit hole in his whole life, but essentially he went with the BSV side of the split. Um, and has then since faded off the radar, but he got, did all these uh, videos with, with Craig Wright and stuff. And it was really interesting to me because, I was sort of dropped out of the scene in 2017 and then kind of came back a bit more at the end of 2020. And I was only kind of keeping a vague eye on it in the meantime, but you had this chat with him in 2018 before Bitcoin SV split off. And mm -hmm. yet the topic, and also obviously before uh, eCash split off and yet the topics that were discussed were those, it was the same things. It was the things that ended up being in the split and that were in community contention being about, like Enchain and what is the role of businesses in the ecosystem versus, you know, are they funding the developers or are the developers, you know, incentivized uh, somehow or is it, will voluntary donations work, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of stuff about, yeah, is there going to be a mining tax that already got brought up, even though it was before that, <laughs> even the SV uh, split and uh, I also saw that you made some comments again, this was years ago, uh, closer to that time that, you know, that if, if ABC had won, you would have just quit everything. And just, had won? Uh, yeah. Well, maybe there was that too. I can't remember exactly what Twitter comes out, but anyway, the, the point was that just 
I thought it would be good because you've been so deeply involved in all this to give the listeners a bit of an understanding of how you think things have played out with those with those different forks and if we're so, in a better place today. So I think that we're in the healthiest place as a community that we've been in a really long time because we have a lot. Our community was much larger in 2017. I'm going to be honest, right? So when the fork first happened, there was a lot of excitement um, about Bitcoin Cash. There were a lot of people involved, but there was also a lot of paranoia because a lot of the Bitcoin Cash community had seen what had happened to Bitcoin and they were paranoid that people from that initiative were trying to sneak into Bitcoin Cash and ruin Bitcoin Cash. This, pay, this caused major, major problems. To be honest, honestly, I think that is the biggest issue that I had with ABC. Um, so ABC, I actually really thought that they had a good technical team. I actually really like a lot of the members of that team. I also think they make really bad decisions sometimes. And so unfortunately for me, um, what I saw was funding is an issue. How we fund developers is an issue. How, who gives them money has a lot of say, even if that's something that's unconscious as to what those developers are doing. And I agree with that, right? So I understand the argument that, no, well, we should get paid out of the block reward that aligns the incentive so that we are working for the price of the coin. But the problem I have with this approach is that people don't ever request less money. I've never seen it. Maybe these people are spectacular humans that once they've gotten what they need and it scales up, they're going to be like, yeah, we'll take less now. I don't think so. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they would have asked for a smaller percent. But if you put any percent, it's guaranteed to be wrong and be way too much of the ecosystem if the ecosystem grows. So if you on-ramp another billion people and the transaction fees actually start adding up to a real amount of money, is that dev team going to take less? And the answer is, to me is no. No, they're not. Which means what you're really voting on is should the people that print the money or build the money take 8% of it? I think that's too high a price. I think that's too high a price to ask for. And I think that ruins the money. And I don't think they're going to ever ask for less. So in that case, if ABC side would have happened and the mining reward would have been there, yeah, I did say I would take my stuff down because it's not a coin I can believe in anymore. Because to me, that's not a fully decentralized coin. Fully decentralized coin means that if someone writes a better implementation, people start using it. And guess what? If you're paying someone 8%, you're giving them a huge bonus over anyone else that could be involved. And there's no way those other people that would want to compete are going to jump in and be as competitive without that extra funding. And they're not going to get that funding from that 8% if they don't haven't produced anything, which puts people in this like mantle role of like, we're the guys that run the chain now. I'm not here to be on a chain where we're the guys that run the chain now. That's it. It was really that simple. So I understand their motivation. They're getting their funding. And even in this bear market, right, with XEC's price shit, they still are able to sustain their dev team. Great. Go build your stuff. In fact, I like a lot of the stuff they're trying to build. I like uh, experimenting with the avalanche stuff. I like 
a lot of the guys there, I think they're really smart, but I think they made a bad call on that minor uh, percentage. But it's because I'm, I'm looking for something that's actually decentralized. I would like it to, to have more specifications that are clear. I'd like it if the teams would argue less at the time in the early days where there was a lot of butting heads between ABC and Enchain and BU and all of these different parties, rather than being like, yo, if we do this together and we can figure out how to get our ducks in a row, we could be the prim primary you know, currency on this planet. People couldn't see the forest for the trees and couldn't see past their own egos. All of them. Craig and the BSV people splitting because of their ego, the ABC people splitting because of their ego, the people wanting the splits to happen because their ego of whatever chain they wanted to survive. It was all ego. When the best thing that could have happened for all of us is to compromise and build something together. But that's just not what happened. And there's no use crying about it now. But uh, now we have multiple experiments. We have, you know, the SV experiment. We have the BCH experiment. We have the BTC experiment. We have the XCC experiment. And we're not going to know really what, is, what success looks like. But XCC, as much as I love that team, I would have never done that for because of the issuance issues. So you had the B BTC issuance. Then most of that probably survived to BCH, right? Some coins are probably lost. They'll never be moved in BCH because of the split. And then you have the XCC split on top of that. And so the number of coins for XCC is way lower. And they're going to need to get to fractional Satoshis way faster if they ever get any form of adoption because there's definitely more lost coins on that network. I would argue that I'd be more excited about XCC if they would have started a brand new blockchain, if it would have been a Genesis block, rather than trying to change the incentives of, of, of BCH. So if they would have said, hey, guys, we need something sustainable. We're, we want to do some stuff that the community doesn't seem too like, excited about. We're going to continue to support BCH and not slander it. But we're going to go and build XCC. We're starting a new blockchain. We want to do this avalanche thing. We don't want to spread FUD. We just want to go work on our own thing. And we're going to take our dev fee because we're starting from nothing. I probably would have been like, yeah, that, 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 that seems like a sane plan. I probably wouldn't have given them a hard time. In fact, it was the fact that they wanted to take the existing Bitcoin Cash community for that ride that gave me the problem that I had. Not what they were doing. It's that the contract for BCH has already been set. We pay miners here. And dev teams all have an even playing field here. There is no person in charge here. That's what we're trying to build. And they were trying to be in charge and do those things. And they wanted to sculpt the big block community to be an ABC community. But that's never what it was. It was a big block community that went with ABC. It was not an ABC community. And now they're building an XCC community, which... I, I wish them the best of success, right? They're building their own community now. They're not trying to force another community to play by a set of rules that they didn't want to play by. From day one, they established new rules on that coin. And yeah, I hope that they are able to innovate and do cool stuff because I still have a lot of respect for those devs, even if I think they made a bad move on the split. Yeah, I mean, Amori had a lot of things right, but I sort of, 
my from my sort of outside uh perspective to it and i certainly as an individual i didn't really pay the heavy cost in terms of all the drama that was going on because i just wasn't uh as involved but i think it was sort of a massively <laughs> evident blunder to like you were saying to if you're going to fork you, you have to fight for the brand basically like of the four eCash is the one that that rebranded so the whole the 90 percent of the value of doing a split like that is that you can say we are the original bitcoin we're going to be satoshi's you know uh dream come to life we can fight over the legitimacy of that bitcoin title which is an enormous mountain to climb right especially as a fork of a fork but and that's why i'm not a really a fan well it's one of the reasons that uh sv and eCash to me they're just they're just too far out of the picture like being a minority fork is already hard enough being a minority fork or a minority fork you just you're already you're fighting several uphill exponentials it's just not gonna happen like bch i can believe that we can make the run and we can do it but i would only be interested in a minority fork from bch most likely if we had already won if we were back to the number one coin and even then it would be like this is it had, it but had I'll be, be honest, if we would have all been able to stick together, there were ways to stick together. Yeah. There were. The, honestly, the SV split was completely contrived. Contrived. Mm. Uh, none of their technical reasons for splitting were, were legitimate. Like literally none. And that, that really was disappointing to me because I just, I don't like a lot of those people, to be honest. Unlike the ABC team where I actually like the people that are there, right? Like I'm not, I don't feel the same way about the SV folks that left, right? But it hurt everybody for them to leave. And for big blocks to succeed, like I said before, we have to be able to acknowledge that we don't like certain people, but they should be able to use money, right? Like, okay, I don't like you, but we can use the same money is okay. That's what I've done my entire life with dollars. So if they would have stayed, that initial price impact wouldn't have happened. I think that XCC split would have still happened though. Like even if SV would have stayed because it was Amari wanted the control and if SV would have stayed, it would have been even more miserable for ABC. I'm going to just be mm -hmm. honest. Like they would have had to deal with more end chain garbage. They would have had to deal with more of that. And the likelihood that they would have split off would have happened. But honestly, I got those inklings from day one uh, for ABC. And let me explain that, right? It's like, I remember being in Slack in 2017 when the split was happening. I was really excited about what was happening with the ABC team. I was really excited about the people that were involved, that this finally was happening for the big block community. But Amari never trusted anyone. I remember the first two marketing, uh, uh, big marketing initiatives that uh, Paul tried to do, Singularity. And he's tried, he's doing Coin Riot. He tries, he's been in the community still, right? But Amari never trusted him. And so they basically put a, a stake into the heart of all the early marketing was that Amari refused to work with the people that wanted to market BCH because he thought they secretly were trying to destroy BCH and were from the BTC community. So right when BCH forked, all that initial marketing that should have happened, all that buzz was met with skepticism, a bunch of like nervousness, lack of trust. And what you need in a community is to work together and to trust one another to get something off the ground. And honestly, every time ABC left their bubble of working on the full node to work with other members of the community, they weren't very polite. 
they weren't very nice. I remember when we worked on Cash Shuffle for a year, I got grief from ABC devs talking about you should do this or that, or this is incomplete. And all it seemed to be to make it better, right? It was all constructive, but they never said anything nice ever. And then we finally shipped Cash Shuffle and then they helped us promote it. And then like all of a sudden things seemed okay. But it's like, do you remember like the long amount of times that you like talked shit about all this work we were doing because it wasn't happening for you and it didn't hit your bar. So they never really understood or appreciated decentralized development. They wanted more quality control. They wanted more control over Bitcoin Cash itself. They wanted to be the ringleader. Even and so I don't, I don't know how to fix that. You know, that was a gap between the community and the people that were writing the software that really isn't something that's easy to, to, to fix. Even with things, I remember sitting in the, uh, uh, what used to be like the, the Bitcoin Cash Association Discord, right? <clears throat> and all the argument over the color wars, it was like, there was like, everyone was like, this green looks great. And then... I I mean maybe I'm biased yeah. and like remembering things wrong now, but I just had this impression that any uh, mostly like Amory's crowd or like the ABC team that was like no 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 we're sticking with this orange anything else is completely invalid like yep. we need to do this 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 centralized and coordinated marketing effort but it seemed like. Everyone that was in that Discord had already decided, like, this green is sick. We're going with this. We could have done the coordinated effort. The people that stopped it from happening was ABC at the time. Yeah. Because they were trying to make coordinated effort, but they weren't willing to listen to the community. That was the first stupid fight, God was God. orange versus green. Who fucking cares, man? Like, really? That's what you're going to destroy, it? like, the, the goodwill of the community? Because we had some really nice designs for new websites that were done in the green. We had a lot of motivation, like a lot of momentum on doing that rebranding, not to mention it differentiated us in the market much better. And as an icon looked way better than the bill that was being rolled out and looked like crap everywhere. So I, I think that had some of these strong, smart personalities been able to work effectively together, we would have had a much better situation. It's wild to think, too, like, I don't think I ever would have even gotten into development if that color war never happened, because I remember seeing all the stupidity and writing a script to get every hue, like the HSL values, just to put up a GitHub repo. And it's like, it's any fucking color you want it to be. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so I guess I'm kind of glad that that infighting happened. Now I'm here on the podcast and, and, and contributing this way. But it, I never yeah, so connected that piece of history before. That's interesting. So let's fast forward to today, right? So to today, the, the teams are working on features. There's a lot less drama. I don't see infighting. I see more collaboration between the devs than I've seen in a long time. Whether And uh, I'm seeing new specifications still worked on that seem to have some merit and that we'll discuss for these future upgrades. But now I go into chats and I don't see people being defensive. I don't see people being... Uh, power hungry or controlling about what's happening. I see just a lot more flexibility uh, between the devs and working together more than I've seen in the past too. Whether that's bouncing between the different implementations to make sure that everything is integrated correctly to just little side projects. Um, 
I, I just see a lot less animosity. Now, granted, I do think our community is a little smaller than it was in 2017, right? 2017, there was more buzz. When I went into the Discord channels, there were more people that were interested in Bitcoin Cash. That's true. And there was a little bit more dev activity uh, from just like people wetting their beak and trying to figure out what to do in Bitcoin Cash. Now, I think that it's more the people that see the value in Bitcoin Cash. They've been in Bitcoin Cash for quite some time, continuing to work together and working together, together better. But really, the growth rate of more devs coming in uh, has slowed down a little bit. And so that's something I want to try to fix is get more people involved in the software community here and the development community for Bitcoin Cash, because that has gone down a little bit in favor of people going and learning Solidity and working in Ethereum or doing whatever it is they wanted to do in the crypto space. Um, it wasn't as exciting for them to just stay on Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, it's certainly the case that I think as a as a community, we obviously need to fight together as much as possible. It's all you know, this sort of dramatic irony of building a trustless system that actually it's just a different kind of community trust that that needs to emerge. I mean, from my perspective, certainly the like for instance, the rebranding to green, I initially was kind of like, that's a bit weird because I know orange, like Bitcoin is orange, but I agree that cash bill type thing, that always looks shit. And once I sort of, it clicked in my mind, I like the green a lot better. Now I'm like, now I look at it, I'm like, orange, Bitcoin, you got the B tilted the wrong way. You've got <laughs> orange is kind of like a bit, you know, a bit awkward and maybe it was good in the early days because it was like standing out. But now green is actually better because every other coin is red and yellow and all these weird like shades. But green stands out. And even though it's got nothing to do with it, psychologically, people are like, green is the chart going up. Green no, is the environment. Need to step out of the way when something isn't their forte. Yeah. It's really that simple. There are smart people that are good at multiple things. I'm not saying that smart people can't be good at multiple things. But the, the overlap between someone that is a node developer and someone that understands mass marketing are not overlapped. Right. So the node developer shouldn't say shit about the logo color. Sorry, man. That's not your spot. Like pick your lane and let somebody else run in the lane that is qualified to run there. And so you, you talk to the marketing team and you say, okay, here's the different logo ideas. And then you got to just give them the chance to make that decision for that project, right? So if a bunch of people get together and they're like, no, we got to fix the branding. We're decentralized, but we've got, let's just all talk about, let's get some ideas there. And 85% of them disagree with you. You need to fucking suck it up and let the marketers go do what they do best. And I think that that's uh, would have helped Bitcoin Cash a lot in the beginning. And uh, it, it hurt us a lot in the beginning that that didn't happen, um, you know? There are people that know marketing really well. They're the ones that should have been focused on the marketing for Bitcoin Cash. The people that work on the full nodes should be working on that. But it shouldn't all be one team doing everything because then you get this watered down, less effective, you know, campaign. Yeah, specializing. Specializing is the way. And so, yeah, let's let's take that on to then the next topic is... So you're going to have to fill me in a bit on the history here too. I don't know the, all the details, but you essentially worked at, at Coinbase, uh, I assume for quite a while actually, and sort of more back in the, the day a little bit. So now everyone knows Coinbase is huge behemoth. I mean, Coinbase is a crypto OG 
uh, company, but still there's, there's got to be, you know, pretty massive growth as was going on there. And that uh, code that you wrote essentially runs tons of the infrastructure and payments of people are doing, you know, today. So just give us a rundown of what, what was it like working there and, how, how do you feel about it since really? So I, I worked there for four and a half years. I did a bunch of different stuff there. I actually worked on the Bitcoin Cash integration there. I was part of the team that built Bitcoin Cash for Coinbase. Uh, I also worked on their next gen multi uh, asset wallet. So unfortunately, I'm also responsible for Ripple, Stellar, EOS, Tezos, and a bunch of others that I built for them uh, with uh, the backend team. And then we, I also worked on a lot of the fiat and banking integrations as well. I got a lot of visibility into them as a company. And I really learned a lot being there. And I met a lot of really smart folks. And the, there's a lot of FUD that is not justified about that company. And then there's a lot of stuff I think that they could do better as well. But overall, I, I had a really good experience there. Um, uh, they treated me well there. I met so many smart folks. And there's a lot of crypto talks, uh, you know, getting to see Zuko talk about, you know, Zcash and talking to all of the different people. You know, we had the founders of pretty much every coin come in for lunch and learns and going through stuff. And every day I was playing with a new blockchain, basically. So it was pretty fun. But they didn't focus on assets that I thought were beneficial to the world as much as they focused on any asset. And that was my big disconnect with them, is I always thought that they should be doing more to support assets that were just better than other assets. But they always wanted to take a equal playing field type of approach where they didn't want to show any favoritism to particular coins. And they wanted to be the equivalent of like a stock market, right? Where everybody is doing, um, you know, able to trade whatever they want, which is why there's this proliferation of absolute garbage that's making its way to Coinbase. Well, the tail end of assets is ugly, right? You look at the crypto market after you've integrated, say, you know, 50, 60 assets, the rest of it's garbage. I mean, like just straight garbage. So yeah, you can list it, right? And you can try to list all the things, but you're not really doing your customers a favor to be honest. In fact, they set people up for these giant crashes when they start pumping, you know, garbage assets because they're popular just to make money, right? Whether that's them marketing things like Sheeb and, you know, really like, I, I don't really agree with that approach. Uh, their direction since I left is pretty much, um, I left because A, I'd been there for four and a half years. I was pretty burnt out. I was pretty much done working on that. I wanted to work on my own stuff. I wanted to work on Clementine full-time. And there were other projects that I really wanted to focus on. Um, but their direction since I, um, since I left is more of the same. They're just adding more assets and doing those pieces. I don't think that that's a, a, a killer strategy. The stuff that they do best, the things, the reasons that I respect Coinbase so much is that I know exactly how they store all their coins. So if you put coins on Coinbase, yep, not your keys, not your not your coins, not your keys, not your coins. I get that, right? But they have the coins. That's the difference, right? So there's some not your keys, not your coins, and they loan out your coins to everyone, and they're just like they literally are playing Russian roulette with your money before uh, you try to withdraw. When you put your stuff into Coinbase, most of that stuff ends up in cold storage and doesn't move. They're not messing with your money. They actually are solvent. They actually care about storing things safely. Their custodial services are extremely high end. And I'm a, a big fan of the members of that team. And they put out a lot of free products that people don't like to talk about, right? They're not just an exchange. 
they've invested in 250 plus crypto companies. They have Coinbase wallet, a non-custodial version of their wallet, supports BCH, smarts, supports smart BCH now uh, via custom network. And there are a few other, and then they also do Coinbase commerce, which is probably one of the easiest ways for someone to take crypto only payments. And yeah, they could uh, use some additional features on some of these products, but they're building products for the community for free based off of their returns on the exchange business. I think that's really awesome. And uh, I think they get a lot more flack than they deserve. Now, do they do everything perfectly? No. Uh, was uh, I think that there's a, a number of things that, uh, you know, every company has its own ups and downs, right? Truth is, is that Coinbase really does want to provide a quality service to the ecosystem and, and store people's money safely. Personally, I would not have scaled as fast as they did. I would not have hired as many engineers as they had in, in um, as quickly as they did. There's a lot of things I would have structured differently than what the execs decided to do. But at the same time, I wasn't an exec, you know, I was a staff engineer. I got to design the backend crypto systems. I got to work on what I liked to do. And I wasn't privy to all the conversations as to why they decided to go the routes that they did, because I wasn't in those executive conversations. So I don't know what their motivations were exactly. And maybe they had good reasons that I'm not privy to, right? Um, now, I think that a lot of people like to hate on Coinbase uh, and outages and things like that on Coinbase. I'll tell you right now, it's really hard in AWS without over-provisioning services by a massive degree to deal with, you know, thousands of percent surges in traffic. People don't understand that. They assume that Coinbase goes down and it's like, oh, they did it on purpose. No, we ne they never went down on purpose. Never. That's when they make their money. They want you to trade. The reason they go down is, so let, let me give you a simple example. I have 50 servers in the cloud to support my current set of users. And this is a made up number, right? I have 50 servers. And then I get 100x the traffic because the price moved because Celsius melted down. I can't boot servers fast enough. Literally can't. I could spin up another thousand servers. They'll be ready in a few minutes. Not good enough. It's low. Yeah. Servers don't like it when they get hammered the moment they're coming up either. They're not, they, they, they don't seem to be a big fan of that. And they like to crash in those cases too. So a lot of times it was growing pains. I was there in 2017. There were growing pains. There were things that caused the system to crash at certain load levels and massive numbers of engineers there to try to figure out exactly what was going on for service of our scale and good engineers working with uh, data store providers and their lead engineers because we were at the cutting edge of what needed to happen. And then people on Twitter would be like, oh, they went down on purpose because the, and it's like, nah, man, like none of that is true. It's like they, they spin these fantasies because they think they know what's going on. But I think that they do manage people's funds extremely well. I think that it's probably the safest exchange to use. I'm proud that I got to build products for them. And I also think they made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And what about uh, Brian Armstrong? So obviously there's uh, you know, a certain degree to which founders are certainly a, a fixation of the public imagination, especially these days, right? 
you've got like Zuckerberg or, you know, Steve Jobs, I even think was the kind of predecessor to a lot of this, uh, Elon as well. Now, I've always found Brian Armstrong a, a super interesting guy, not that I've ever known him in any great detail, but, I, you know, he was on the scene early and uh, he certainly had, you know, some opinions about it. He, he definitely comes from the OG sort of cypherpunk mm-hmm. type of vision and all that. And the way he's run Coinbase, not without criticism, has been, there's been a couple of instances. There was one recently, and I didn't dig into all the details of the drama, so I'm not going to be able to say, you know, how it all went down. But there's basically been a couple of occasions where people in his company have been dissatisfied, and he's kind of said, look, like it or lump it, you know, we're doing the, the this, is, this is the mission, we're spreading crypto kind of thing. And if you don't like it, just get out. I'm not in the business of trying to sort of pander to whatever upset, you know, portion of my employees or whatever. I don't have time for that. And we're not going to get very far if, if we're trying to do that, right? Sort of like Elon. And no, it was a big distraction. I'll be honest. There was a lot yeah. of like social campaigning of things outside of crypto that happened at Coinbase and it wasn't productive. So I was actually a fan of Brian saying that, but at the same time, he was saying, you know, like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing the, 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 the stuff based off of, you know, social mandates or whatever. He was forcing people to get vaccinated if they were having in-person meetings. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that's... like to me, without the government saying that uh, that was a requirement, they took that upon themselves to force that upon employees, even though they're not a healthcare company. So to me, like that, it's like weird for him to say like, oh, don't be woke. Don't talk about the woke stuff at the office, but then implement one of the most woke things you could possibly implement. Uh Uh-huh. And what about, uh, we've got somebody asking in the chat here, Bitcoin payment module is asking about the, the near flippening at the December, 2017, the price is skyrocketing BCH is at whatever it was, 40% of BDC, you know, there's enough momentum and stuff. There was, you know, it was it was probably only, you know, 24 hours from if things had gone a different way, a different world. BCH catches up, the whole market goes, holy shit, the big block is a Bitcoin and Bitcoin coin, if you're finished, it's over, you know. Uh, was that, again, that was sort of, there was a lot of... So that was really a complex yeah. thing. So yeah. first off, um, I, I can't talk too much about the internals because, um, yeah. you know, I was, I, I was there that time. Yeah, and, what uh, I can yeah. say at a high level, though, is very simple, is uh, we hadn't li- listed a currency in a really long time yeah. uh, since Litecoin. And so um, and the fact that we hadn't listed a coin and we had new engineers, there wasn't a lot of muscle memory on bringing out a new coin again. Because of the size of our company, there's a lot of demand when a new coin comes out. So you need to have enough liquidity that it's a fair market, right? So price goes up is one thing, right? But it only matters in that it was a fair market and that price had that increase. What happened was there wasn't enough liquidity. It made the, the, the book sideways. And we had to cut trading because the book was sideways. It was just not in a healthy, there wasn't enough traders just in general. And so we needed to hold off on that. And that wasn't my call, right? That's just what ended up happening. But that, there was no intention there. It was just like, oh my God, this market is, there's, there's just not enough participation. We launched this too early. We needed to build the, the, the books deeper before we launched. And then we had to relaunch again. 
that was really a fake upper bound price. So like when people say, oh, Bitcoin crash, uh, cash, it crashed from $4,000. And it's like, dude, that 4,000 number was garbage. It never was 4,000. That was like some side effect of a sideways market that really wasn't reality. Honestly, the upper bound price of BCH was about 2K. Like in my estimation of it, in the fair markets. So outside of those crazy little spikes, there was a little period where it was around 2K and then we've had a steady drop off. But that that one day was just because of, um, you know, not ideal management on launching that asset. Yeah, I mean, and it was just definitely, definitely a tense point in crypto history, I guess. Uh, and so, you know, it will always be remembered forever after, you know, with aspects mm-hmm. and analysis and you know yeah it's definitely just something we had to had to ask yeah, about and, and yeah we're, we're just people right like we're trying to launch these assets yeah. we're trying to create fair markets for everybody to participate in and we always are trying to do things by the book and record everything that's going on and there's always that person that's in the room that is you know to make sure that uh we don't go to a dangerous place right? To, to, to try to make sure that we always provide a safe environment for our users. And a- when a book goes lopsided like that and someone pays, you know, upper bounds on those coins, um, and you know that, that the book was bad, that means that you're basically guaranteed that that user is going to lose money, right? Like it's like yeah. that book wasn't healthy. It spiked too high. People are getting in at a price point where they're all going to get wrecked and you don't want that to happen. Right. Um, so th- there's a lot that goes into it and a lot of stakeholders that need to like really make sure that the market is um, a fair playing field. Yeah. And final question then on this uh, topic. So Brian Armstrong, I I have this, it's not a conspiracy theory, but I have this idea that he's a big block fan and he was at the time of the split and everything like that. And that he's just in the back of his mind, he's buying, it's like BCH is now not even in the most recommended coins. So it was for a very long time, but inevitably the market sort of moved on. And I understand that it kind of mm-hmm. fell out of favor, but I just sort of have this idea and I've heard uh, Roger, Roger Veer talk about this a little bit too, that, you know, among the old crowd who still have a lot of sway in a lot of different things, him being a prominent example, they're all still sort of on the big block side and that if so there was Brian, a surge and a chance for flipping, suddenly he would just, I'm going to just dump a bunch of money in and put it on the front page of Coinbase and let's just flip in it. Well, Brian has a lot of, uh, he's a really smart guy. He thinks about things um, to a very large degree. And so I don't want to put words in his mouth because I think he's well-spoken about a lot of these topics. That being said, he's always been favorable about big blocks. He used to come by my desk and be like, oh, when's BCH going to ship, blah, blah, He was pro big blocks. And I, I think that he was just disenfranchised with the attitude that came from Core, their non-scaling, non-growth attitude. And he thought that the, there was only a couple of ways to fix it. He, and, and maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe people should clarify with him. But I think that he saw Bitcoin in a place that was less than ideal from his perspective. He thought something needs to give. Either the block size needs to be increased or some other chain is going to take over. I think he then kind of split his bets between the big blocker community and the Ethereum community. And was like, okay, ETH has a culture of building and scaling. We're not going to go hit the same roadblocks we did with Core on this chain. 
And the big blockers give some chance that like sanity will re uh, reemerge in the Bitcoin space when it comes to it being used as money. And so we did the Bitcoin cash integration. He kept pushing things on Ethereum as well. But then the market went with Ethereum. Now, whether that was the correct move for the market, you know, the market did what it did. And when he saw the market move with Ethereum, well, obviously he saw that as his way to bring crypto to the masses and not have to deal with the BS that was happening with Core and give an alternate route out of the mess that he saw happening. That's my guess. Again, clarify it with him, but that's kind of how I, at high level, I digested it where he would have been happy to see big blocks succeed on Bitcoin. But what he cared about most was providing a quality crypto to the world that could be used. He really does want use. He's not a hodl and forget guy. I think he really does want it. We used to have dog fooding sessions in Coinbase. So we'd bring in donuts in the kitchen and you could only pay for donuts with crypto. And it forced all the employees to use crypto. And we had those initiatives. We had think tank stuff where we'd uh, debate lightning versus big blocks and that kind of stuff. But it was always about finding quality answers and truths, not just like, and we'd debate each other's positions. So I remember yeah, one yeah. time I had to defend the lightning network. That was hard. And then this other guy, Justin, had to defend big blocks, which he didn't want to do either. But it was an interesting conversation. And it was because we really wanted to get to uh, the truth, you know, some level of truth on what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So that was, that was then. And this is now. So you've got this project, Clementine's Nightmare, that I was reading up on today. So you've co founded, it's called a play and earn nft hero battle a game it's launching mm -hmm. hopefully later this year or early 2023 you can tell me if i got any of this wrong but this is my summary right. of what came out of i was uh reading up and, and poking around with it a bit today the the quote that i pulled out of the white paper was clementine's nightmare aims to combine the action of auto battlers the strategy of ccgs and the customization and depth of rpgs so mm -hmm. for people who are not necessarily gamers, I mean, this is all familiar lingo to me, but essentially there's, you know, different kinds of video games. Some people don't know anything about uh, video games, but you have like kind of online card games. You have uh, RPGs, you know, you typical run around a dungeon and kill some monsters like uh, Diablo or whatever. And then uh, Auto Battlers is the sort of newer um, generation type of game that came up with the... I can't even know. It's called League of Legends Chess, whatever it's called. Yeah, uh, yeah. Probably like... Uh, Dota similar. Underworlds. There's, there's a few of them, yeah. So you're kind of mixing a few different things together here. And the way you, you're kind of pitching it is with this uh, animation style for the audio list. It's like, you should look up the artwork first. The artwork is absolutely fantastic. Like, you guys have gone all out on that. And it's genuinely impressive compared to you know we used to crypto punks and board apes this kind of like half done like bullshit this is this is really really good stuff and it's like it a kind of really also, hard on that stuff yeah it's like a claymation type of animated uh vibe i saw you described as whimsical horror uh kind of uh vibe and like on the website the website is amazing you've got original music there that uh plays in the corner 
and you know the game elements seem to obviously it seems like you can't play the game yet but the you yeah. have thought through the elements i saw there's okay there's rebels beasts dreams nightmares and misfits and when i saw that i already thought okay this is already good because uh gaming fans will know that five is a bit of an auspicious number for gaming like in magic the gathering there's there's five mm -hmm. colors and stuff because it allows you to get like if you have four then it it sort of splits into two versus two and stuff but if you have five you can have a good mix of combo you know things that synergize and things that are anti-synergies and stuff like that right so all, all of these uh elements are combining together in what is going to be a, a game it is a game at the core and then the blockchain piece is kind of an add-on that yes. you've got rather than it being the opposite approach because a lot of people are we're making a blockchain thing and then it happens to be a game right which is so i'm gonna give you my little pitch right so yeah, hit me um there are a lot of play to earn games right i don't think they're fun i don't think i don't think play to earn is fun i think play to earn is grindy and uh, people are trying to make peanuts just playing a game because they want to earn money and rather than it being fun or them being engaged and it becomes kind of like a job. And then we've seen these weird communities spin off of it where basically there's somebody that pays for everyone's characters and takes part of their money. And this weird ecosystem has developed there. And we didn't really want to build that. Uh, I, that wasn't something that was that interesting to me. And what we wanted to build was something that could reward players that played. And it wasn't about treating a game as a way to make money, but to play a good game and that the assets that you're building up in your game have some real world value. That's it, right? So I go and I play my 3v3 battler and I'm leveling up, you know, my Clementine. And I get my Clementine to a high level. I get some really cool cosmetics for it. I played it for a few months and now I'm like, yeah, really don't want to play this character anymore. I want to play a different tune. In most games, that tune's just sitting there and collecting bit rot in your wallet. <laughs> And like, it's just not going to do anything. Well, it's a lot cooler if they're able to sell their character so they can go to the market. And because that character was leveled up and has unique attributes and unique cosmetics and is different than everybody else, it has unique value on the marketplace. It's not just some common or some base skin. It's a unique rendition of Clementine. And so someone's going to want to pay for that, right? So if I want to switch characters, right? I just leveled up my level 10 Clementine. Well, maybe I want to play Mord, or I want to play one of the Nightmares now, or I want to play a different character. Well, not, technically, I could sell my Clementine, or I could buy a high-level version of Mord. But if I buy the Mord, then I'm not going to customize them exactly how I want to customize them. because I. And so there's the market dynamic, which is I have assets that are special that I want to sell. Legendaries, rares, characters, right? Things that are not just, oh, I go there and I see a bunch of junk. Stuff that a new player might actually want. And providing that ecosystem for the player that they can sell their goods and providing that market through the crypto space. That's what we want to provide. So I'm not guaranteeing someone can just play and make money. What I'm guaranteeing is that they can play and that those assets will have some value when they go to sell them or switch games and that they'll live on the blockchain to some degree. That's a very different promise that I'm promising to my end user. So the goal is, is to get a traditional gaming audience into Clementine to play our, um, you know, auto battler. And it is 
similar to kind of a MOBA setup, League of Legends kind of view, that three quarter mm. view, that kind of like character size. Yeah. And it's a 3v3 on a much smaller map. Okay. So with League of Legends and these other games, you have this giant map and you have all of these conditions of things that you can do on that map. But that doesn't actually translate that well to mobile. It doesn't translate that well for short games. Yeah. So we were like, okay, well, what, why don't we take that but make a smaller arena and let's just, uh, I don't know if you play Heroes of the Storm, but Air, uh, ARAM is basically <laughs> yeah. uh, everybody just plays some fights, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And you have one lane. So it's kind of like that. Everybody's in this like smaller area and you uh -huh. brawl it to the death. And there's no towers, there's no other stuff, but you can level your character, you can get new abilities, you have the same ability system similar to that MOBA style, yeah. but you don't move your character. Your abilities and cards include movement type of things for your character. So when you're battling, you're going to pick your three, uh, well, your character, and then two other players are going to pick their character on your side. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually six players per game right? Yep. It's you and your two teammates. And then once you have those, you go into the arena, you select your starting position where you want each character. And some of them are going to be ranged. Some of them are going to be melee. You're probably going to stack your melee in the front like tanks. You're going to put your, your, your DPS in the back, just like your normal strategy games, right? And then the match is going to start. And everybody's going to start doing their basic attacks and basic stuff. And you're going to have your abilities and cards. And that's what tells the people what to do. So like you can select your target and be like, I want to attack this guy, right? But now you're just in auto attack. You're selecting your abilities and those abilities are going to start hitting them and doing those types of things. And some of the cards and other elements are designed to include, like do the strategy elements that you otherwise would have been like microing and clicking around to do. Mm -hmm. So instead of like constantly adjusting your character, one of your attacks might include a backflip that includes an attack so that you can distance yourself from the guy that's attacking. So that it's still this visual fiesta and includes a lot of the elements from games that you have played before, but it's a lot easier to play on a mobile phone, on a tablet, and it creates a really quality experience between like a desktop and mobile player playing together because there's no distinct advantage to having a mouse like most of the strategy games out there yeah okay so tell me about yeah i'm a big fan of, of all these uh kind of games i've put in a lot of grind on uh starcraft 2 and on league of legends so tell me about the ranked system because that's what i'm immediately like how does that work? Is there going to be, that can be such a hard thing to do because skill matchmaking, you know, I know like the League of Legends, they have this huge complicated system, like the back end infrastructure to support all these matching these thousands yep. of players is like insane. How are, you, how are you handling that? Same deal. I'm going to have thousands of serves dealing with the matchmaking <laughs> and uh, okay. we're going to be right. figuring out, uh, you know, based off of the character's level, yeah. And the number of play hours that are associated with that account and a bunch of other statistics will be matching people to similar play levels, right? Yeah, league system um, ALO or something, yeah. Right, and then we're going to also uh, be, we really are interested in doing kind of like tournament type play as well. Yeah. So there's two main modes. There's a PVE mode and that PVE mode is, I don't know if you ever played like Slay the Spire. I don't know if you played Part that. Of it. <laughs> but games that you kind of walk a map yeah. And you pick where you're going on your map and you eventually get to the end of, uh, of the map. 
right? But you pick your path through it. So it's a little bit adjustable, right? Yeah. Jet? <laughs> it's like, it I sounds like a slow version of Pokemon, you know, like I'm thinking Viridian Forest, but <laughs> that's maybe that's different. <laughs> yeah. So I obsessed over Slay the Spire for too long. So good. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not asking for special treatment, but I know this is still early. How do I play this game? Like, I, I know there was a while where it was like, oh, watch the Twitter for the Discord link. I'm not online 24-7, man. Those links go so quick. Do Am I going to have to wait until this is finally released? So, no. So, the uh, what, it depends. We'll have alpha access, uh, hopefully, beginning of next year. Uh, maybe a little earlier. I can't promise that. But uh, for anyone that's holding the NFTs. So, we issued two collections of NFTs. And anyone that has one of the Clementine's Nightmare NFTs uh, will be invited to join the alpha play where there'll be a limited selection of characters, but like it'll look good, right? So we, we can't ship something that doesn't look good. We need to make sure everything is amazing by the time that alpha hits. So it's not our alpha. Like we'll have dev builds internally. We'll have our alpha build internally. We'll get all the rough edges out there. Then we'll do our public alpha where we invite our holders to come play with us. And then we're going to be doing a lot of balancing during that alpha state. So the goal is to engage the community, give them early access to the game before everyone, and then be able to tune all of the factions, abilities, and all of that with the community to get to a more public beta. That public beta would then invite some people outside of our NFT community to also join in uh, to the fun. And then we would do more play testing and then finally final release after that. We don't want to rush because the balancing is going to be so key and um, there's going to be a lot of different play styles. So by design. with the, with the NFT collections, they're just on uh, Ethereum right now, right? That is correct. Okay. So right now we, there's a reason we did that. So I'm a big smart BCH guy. I like smart BCH. I run infrastructure for it. I've worked on a couple of collections for smart BCH. The reality is, is that I've, I did all the numbers on smart BCH's NFT community. And the community is just not as nearly as big as the other NFT communities that are out there. And when I mean not nearly as big, I mean orders of magnitude different. Not just, oh, it's an extra thousand people or whatever. We're talking, um, you know, in Smart BCH, the community is probably a couple thousand people trading NFTs on Smart BCH right now. And even the collections that have a decent distribution on Smart BCH have like 450 holders, 500 holders, right? At the max. And then you look at the Ethereum side um, and some of the other blockchains, Avalanche, Solana. A lot of them I didn't want to touch, but Ethereum, I do like Ethereum, not because I think it makes great money yet, but because there's a lot of development activity, a good ecosystem, a lot of wonderful users, and that's where the NFT community was. So we were like, okay, in order for us to get the funding for the game and get everything dialed in so that we can actually ship this, we need to go on the biggest chain for NFTs, period. So I can't play favorites, can't assume that I can make this happen on another chain. I need to go where the people are. I need to drop stuff that's extremely hot. I need to make sure all the art's amazing, that we have all our ducks in a row and get this out to the largest audience we possibly can because the NFT audience is still considerably smaller than the gaming audience. And we weren't ready to market to gamers yet because we don't have a game yet, right? It's in development. I've got you know pre-builds that are not ready for mass consumption. 
So we decided to go that uh, approach and we shipped these two initial collections on ETH. But the game itself, because of the way the blockchain integration pieces are connected, they're connected just because of the marketplace. The game activities aren't happening on, on chain. The matches you have aren't on chain. It's just the economy that we're putting on chain. So when someone wants to export their character, I'm going to ask them what blockchain they want it to be on. And I can craft an NFT on whatever blockchain makes sense for the user. Now, we're going to give recommendations and only support a small subset. Right now, I, it's looking like, and don't quote me on this, and no one play this video later and say that I promised anything, right? <laughs> is Ethereum will definitely be there. We'll probably need some form of Ethereum layer two, like Polygon, Optimism, something like that. We're going to definitely do smart BCH to allow people to interact on this BCH blockchain. And I am thinking about also having Avalanche um, and AVEX and basically supporting the Web3 platforms that I think are the most useful and letting people choose based off of their fee preference, network preference, where they want to mint their NFTs and which marketplaces they want to use. Because that doesn't affect me playing the game. It doesn't affect any of the other gamers. They all can play the game exactly the same way. And we can provide that flexibility of blockchain in game while doing our fundraiser and doing that where the people are. Yeah. So I saw it when you, in these videos that I was watching you talking about. It's linked on the slide. People can uh, look all this stuff if they want to hear you know, even more in depth than we're going to have time for it here. But the idea is basically that the sort of, as in most games, there's kind of, especially card games, you know, you have the commons and uncommons and the rares, and like you're saying, legendaries, and then the top tier characters and so on. And only the top like sort of pinnacle of it is exportable onto blockchains, which avoids, yeah, just sort of BSV nonsense of like, we're going to store our entire game database on the blockchain, which is completely stupid. But uh, the point being that you, so once you export the characters into the NFTs, you can then trade or sell those and then you can re-import them back into the game. Is that how it works? I can burn the NFT and get the character back? That's exactly it. That's really cool. This That's is, exactly I, it. And so you can play the go. game without <laughs> any NFTs. You just download the game, you play yeah. the game, you earn some characters. You can't mint those as NFTs because they're low XP. They don't have yeah. a lot going for them yet. And those would be boring as hell as NFTs anyways. So we wait until their character is cool. And then it unlocks the minting flow for that character. And then for high quality items, legendaries, rares for cards and abilities, those are exportable if you happen to hit that amazingly rare roll to get it yeah this sounds absolutely legendary and yeah all you need to do is just get the twitch category on uh of clementine's nightmare kicking off and this mm -hmm. could be uh massive i mean the the x factor of course for for games uh, you know and i'm sure you know this is there's fu fun is the heart is the secret sauce right it's hard to capture that right you can have amazing everything else you can have amazing tech amazing art amazing story amazing cinematics amazing whatever oh. but it's just got to be fun and people it's got to be the game like slay yeah. the spire the graphics were mid-range game was fun it was fun um there's a lot of games out there they don't need there's a difference between graphics and fun and some games have amazing graphics and are fun, right? Like Horizon Zero Dawn or, you know, those types of games are amazing and graphics, right? But when you're talking about strategy, what I care about is that the models and the, the arenas that people are fighting in look great and that the models have a lot of variety when they move around. 
that they feel like the characters have really come to life and they don't feel like robotic or um, canned experience. Well, you can play chess. A lot of people play online chess and that's, it's got no animations at all, but they still play chess, you know? So That's true. Man, I could easily see, especially with the tournaments, this being a thing very well suited for esports teams. Like, yeah, and that's what we're designing for too. Oh, I'm so um, pumped. Uh, the, the, the different class uh, character classes, they all map to different attribute sets, similar to like what Magic the Gathering did. So, and I've played Magic the Gathering since I was 14 years old. So I have I've to have a game sometime, mate. Almost 30 years. I'll play some vintage so, cube or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I really like um those types of games. And we've thought about this from that type of perspective. Is how do we bring those ideas of different like ability types to a battle where it really feels like that character is the manifestation of a certain element, right? And not necessarily element, but a certain, you know, mold. And it's been, and making it unique. The one color we decided that we're, we're not trying to really take aspects from in magic is blue always pissed me off in magic. It's like, <laughs> oh, you can't go Blue's this turn. <laughs> oh, whatever. Like, dude, I don't want that in a battler game, right? Like, I don't want people to like, so there's not as much of that trickery that you see in magic, um, but a lot of really interesting imagination. Yeah, no, this sounds absolutely sick. I mean, yeah, we can't, uh, we, we're going to have to have to move on, but uh, definitely, you know, I can just see the passion uh, lighting up in you. You know, I'm sure the demos and stuff that you work, the, all the public stuff is amazing so far. And, and when this comes out, I know maybe we'll have to do a special episode. We'll get you back on to do like, a, I don't know, launch or announcement, or maybe we'll just do a stream. I don't know, like first playthrough or something, but this, I'm- We can do that. That sounds- this sounds absolutely sick. Stream us fighting each other on Twitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I get, yeah. Get publicly wrecked. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> even better. I'm down. I'm down. All right. All right. Next thing uh, we got is, oh, okay. Here we go. So this one's a bit of a, a classic. I feel like this might kind of turn into a bit of a meme. We'll go down in the history. This very different vibe. So the Bitcoin Cash community this week, it actually came from uh, a, a clip that I picked up on Twitter. There's this guy, Eric Wall, who I honestly, I was sort of vaguely aware of him, but I don't know. He's been around a long time, got a lot of Twitter followers and everything. And he was essentially having this uh, Twitter spaces chat with this other guy, Udiverse, who is also sort of mm-hmm. similar, big in the kind of Bitcoin core uh, community. And he essentially had this moment of like clarity like were we the bad guys in the block size war so jet's got the clip and we'll just play that for the audience to hear it straight from the horse's mouth as to as to what he said i mean both you and me have probably woken up one year ago two years ago maybe even three years ago uh and had and we had like a massive hangover from lightning. Um, and it's, it, 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 ties, it ties into what DJ Fluffy is saying, like with Roger Ver and everything. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it would be like if that discussion happened over again. The expectations on lightning were like, you, you said that I have one that I believe in technical innovation. I think that Richard Hart calls it shiny, like shiny thing syndrome. That something needs to be <laughs> 
something needs to be very shiny for me to be excited about it. I think that I definitely had that about lightning. I definitely thought that, I mean, I was so bullish on lightning. I was so um, thinking about lightning as the best way to, this is how we're going to transact and everything. And, and now that lightning is here, it's just uh, this, like even, like even now, like lightning has been around for a long time, but I don't feel like I want to use the system to pay with because of the inbound liquidity and all the nonsense around that. And just like open up, opening up your lightning wallet and has to sync. And it, uh, like, I think that lightning is, you want to be able, when you're using cryptocurrency, you just want to be able to put a deposit address somewhere and then people are sending you money without you even maintaining that. You don't want to have to, go through the hassle of these open channels so like lightning after a few years like after we were fighting so much about how important it is and this is the sound direction of for bitcoin like all these bitcoin cash people they were saying yeah i mean but lightning is kind of like too complex and, and a bit annoying i mean now it's like i'm waking up and i'm having this hangover and we won the war but uh they have some points. <laughs> they have they have some points. And it feels awful to say. Uh, and I, I and I, sometimes I've even been thinking like, hey, were were we the bad guys? Like during that whole war, lightning versus big blocks. Like were were we the bad guys? Were we the ones that weren't listening? So that was that. That's you know music to my ears, and I think the whole community. That's like pouring you know water in a, in the parched desert or something but it's like after five years of being derided and mocked and shut longer really because it was all going on before the actual split took took yeah. place it was like this glimmer of like self-reflection cut in there you know i mean i'll be honest i've been building software for a long time i built software for motorola i built software for qualcomm i built stuff for coinbase I built stuff that actually has been used and scaled and lightning's a fucking dumpster fire so the 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 fact is is that no one should want to use that shit and um it has liquidity issues it's way over complicated and it was all shiny syndrome like that's 100 percent it is elizabeth stark got up there and would talk about how great lightning's going to be in the future and how it's going to be like the internet and protocol layers and all that stuff and people ate it up for fucking breakfast when it was all garbage it was pure garbage. There's never been a protocol in any period in time in history that has restricted the capacity of the lower levels of the protocol. Full stop. Let's just go there. Their argument is moot. Unless they can provide me an example of any system ever where the base layer was throttled on purpose and that additional layers didn't just ease in complex, like help with complexity. Everything else I've ever seen, the bottom layers have huge throughput, huge throughput. And then you add additional stuff on top of it to make that experience better or whatever it is. We've never had a system where it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to artificially constrain the bottom layer of the system. We're going to put everything on top of it in this crazy way. It's just that's just not how protocols are built. No, it's just not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to layer like an onion, right, where you have these layers of protocol. It, it, that's how it's supposed to work. And it, it's, it was a bad design from day one. It was a bad design. And that's why neither of the original developers of that paper ended up working on it. Yeah. And so, I mean, we knew. Like, I have a lot of respect for what they were trying to do. 
And I also think that payment channels are extremely powerful. The idea of updating a single Bitcoin transaction and sending around unbroadcast transactions and maintaining state, being able to do that at the end of a channel, totally fine. And that sounds great. With cheap fees on a big blockchain, you can open up a channel and you can do micropayments all day with one hop. My problem with Lightning is that they extrapolated this idea that payment channels are cool for one hop. So let's make a multi-hop payment channel network. And that shit doesn't work. You need massive liquidity. You have route finding problems. You have, you're literally barking down like the nastiest engineering challenges in the space, like period, for something that just doesn't work. And that's why no one uses it. That's why it's still not reliable and it's not going to be. And the only way it will be reliable is if there are more centralized entities on that network that manage your channels for you. So you buy, basically have an account somewhere, they manage your channels again, and that's not your keys, not your coins, right? So if you have someone else managing your channels or a custodian, then that makes no sense. Lightning is not convenient. It doesn't let me just put a QR code on my website. Like, what the fuck? Like I have to generate invoices or go through some weird kludge to not deal with having to create an invoice. These are not good solutions. It's mirrored in tons of complexity. And that's why solutions that from a cryptographic and network perspective aren't as good ended up taking off. MetaMask, right? Terrible design. Terrible. I got one address. I'm going to associate it with my identity. I'm going to bake it in my browser. Mm, you're just like recipe for disaster. Absolute recipe for disaster. They got 100 million users. They people don't give a shit. It's easy. It makes sense. There's a number, there's a little thing they click in their browser. It tells them how much money they have. They can go and see their transactions. They can issue the stuff from their browser in some wonky way. And it works. And they're not worried about filling up their channels. They're not worried about high, like the, the, all this extra complexity with Lightning. It's bound to lose. And Unfortunately, if we would have been able to scale the block size even reasonably for Bitcoin, it would have bought us plenty of time for them to realize that without it destroying fucking the utility of the network. So if we would have been able to raise the block size slightly and alleviated some of the fee pressure on Bitcoin, then Lightning developers would have had more time to figure out things that were going on. And if it didn't work, the network still is fine for all those Bitcoiners out there. And it could be used as an accent rather than a forced alternative because of fees. Then maybe lightning would have been okay. Maybe a little bit of lightning use on slightly larger blocks would have worked. But betting the whole network, the farm on lightning and thinking that that's going to be the mass scaling solution, that was just absolutely ridiculous. And so I look at it as the people that were baddies were anyone that was trying to split the community in any way at that time. So in 2014, there should have been a reasonable compromise on the block size and there should be one Bitcoin today. And if yeah, we would have but... done that, we'd have a bunch more merchants that were accepting Bitcoin. It'd be ubiquitous across our economy using Bitcoin. Instead, we smashed the adoption for Bitcoin, made sure it didn't continue to grow. We had negative merchant adoption on Bitcoin. And then we had three splits on the big block side. That, And now it's there's no traction there. It hurt the space incredibly for those splits to happen. So I look at it as like in 2014, 2015, anyone that wasn't advocating for 
let's get a slight bump on the block size. Lightning's okay, develop what you want as long as we get a small block size increase. What's important is we keep this coin together and that we keep the community together and we keep the growth moving forward. So I think well, a lot of people failed, a lot of people. Then 2017 happened and obviously the fork happened with Bitcoin Cash because it needed to. It got to the point where I was like, this shit's not fixable. They're not going to increase the block size. They are totally in some dogma realm that we don't understand. And we have to fork off or else there's no chance for Bitcoin. And then we watched Ethereum grow, which is really interesting. Um, but it's it's just really sad to me because they, they were all those people that were trying to split the community and saying that one side of the community was bad instead of trying to work together to keep it as one giant monetary network under the Bitcoin brand, those people hurt all of us. Well, it just goes, I think, to to the sort of the psyop nature of of what happened, which is that all these people who ended up on the small block side and who, yeah, maybe they aren't developers and they were sort of figuring out who to trust but they couldn't even see their way through the haze of like the censorship started and it was not controversial that there was censorship it's still now not controversial that it was censorship Mm -hmm. and yet they still don't really connect that well maybe they didn't hear all the arguments out fairly so even though they picked of who they trusted well it's like if you're already handicapping one side of the argument severely then it's not like you can really trust your own judgment that you've made because you didn't even have all the all the information and so being in this situation now that 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 mentality is starting to creep in like wait did were we the ones who who fucked it up and i saw somebody made a comment like oh why is the bitcoin cash community celebrating this shouldn't we all want to be on the same team we just you know, have different methods of getting there. And and essentially the answer is no, because even the reason this is so important is because they they were the bad guys. And I would love to have whoever wants to be back in Bitcoin Cash, money for the world and whatever, but there's no way for those people to come back to the community until they've understood that they were the they were causing the problem. They were the problem until they can see that and think, oh, I had it wrong. Uh, you know, otherwise they'll just bring that straight back into into BCH when they arrive here. So it's not there's no point to any of it of having them on our team until they have realized, yeah, guys, and that's a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of self reflection, a lot of humility. Yeah, and, they're different teams, so that yeah. people are striving for different things. Bitcoin doesn't want to be cash. Yeah. Bitcoin wants to be, uh, you know, this reserve asset for people to barely move. I don't even understand the economics of the new Bitcoin they're trying to create. I don't understand how you have low volume and high fees for just some players. And then they're just going to be okay with that because the volume's low. I I don't understand it. I, I really fundamentally don't understand the store of value narrative for Bitcoin because it makes no sense. It's like, wait, okay, so I hold it. And then what does it do? Like, do I spend, like, I, I don't, I, I don't understand. And then the fees are going to go up if it's a reserve asset. And then uh, the, the big companies are going to be moving Bitcoin around. So somehow Bitcoin was designed for big companies to move value instead of peer-to-peer electronic cash. That's not the same fucking team, man. And it's like, 
another reserve, like way off the reservation on the team. Right. Our team is like we want to use it every day. We want to use this for daily payments. We also want some of these other new blockchain technology like features to also be available to us. But mainly it's about us transferring value trustlessly and not ceding control to the big corporations and having some top down money forced on us. But that's the irony. We're just trying to top down force a different money. (laughs) But they think we that's the funny thing about it. We think they were captured by Blockstream and the banks, the corporations, and they think that we were captured by the corporations, fucking Enchain and Bitcoin.com. You know, that's the and Coinbase or whoever was advocating for big blocks, right? So and I think just... I think corporate decentralization is just fine. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also the case that the the crypto native companies were the ones that were they were the corporations, but it wasn't the bank corporations; it was the corporations that were pushing the crypto ecosystem that were like, this is great. That was started by these Bitcoin OGs. That's the corporations you want on your team. That's the, you don't want the ones that have got this outside investment. But anyway, so Eric Wally made these comments, right? And then he, so I sort of did a bit of digging to think, well, is he going to have a come to Jesus type of moment? But he has these strange follow-up comments where he said on his Twitter, Bitcoin has a problem but it is decades away and the current unpragmatic thought leaders of Bitcoin, in addition to the situation itself having a big possibility of being different due to new tech slash market, may very well have been rotated out to new ones more inclined to change. I don't believe that Bitcoin will change until the problem is starting to show empirically. It will start with one and two block reorgs becoming more prevalent. And faced with that fact, I believe that there will be an openness to change and more confidence in tried ideas like EIP 1559. So, he kind of had the sense of like, wait, did we screw it up? But that only lasted for a brief little flicker. And then he and Peter McCormack, we've seen as well recently too, have this kind of narrative that no, we will raise the block size or we'll get around to it when it's a problem. They don't kind of realize that the ship has already sailed. Right. The problem already happened. Yeah, that's right. When do they think that there's going to be the point at which it's like, oh, now it's a problem and we need to do something. The rest of the world is just blazing forward so it's it's over you guys are a relic but they don't see that it's no just they very don't strange, see that. right they're i don't understand it um the the truth is is that you need to stay relevant there yeah. are a lot of other people that are very talented trying to figure out ways to do electronic payments whether they're centralized or decentralized or whatever there is a lot of players in that space bitcoin is not alone in trying to revolutionize payments or or uh, crypto or anything. And it's just not there. It's like no one needs a really expensive uh, append-only ledger. No. I also think that a lot of the energy arguments, right? Like I don't like the energy arguments that come about like, oh, proof of work uses too much energy. The truth is, is that if you limit the block size, then I think that argument's absolutely true. <laughs> like, yeah, you're arbitrarily limiting how many transactions are there and they're using all this fucking power. At least mine the shit that people need mined. Like, don't just like leave a bunch of shit on the table while you're eating up all this power for the world and be like, yeah, we just think one meg blocks are cool. Like, that's stupid as hell. I just don't, I just don't understand um, and how they think their design works because I can't see any way that it does that makes economic sense long term yeah well i don't know that's a bit of a mystery to everyone i think but it's just something that we've been tracking across this show has just been the slow shifting of 
narratives as the the realization just dawns on the the BDC side step by step that wait we're not the cypherpunks who are fighting the banks and we haven't been for a long time in fact no no, they're not cypherpunks at all they've been working with the banks and custodians (laughs) and trying to work with regulators on incorporating bitcoin into the legacy system instead of building a parallel economy yeah they are working for the man yeah that's it they're not they're not giving the man the middle finger they just they just think they are and it's one of those things no, like it's harder to, it's easier to fool people than convince them that they've been fooled like that's just basically what's happening there so i don't know we'll keep it we'll keep an eye on that we just gotta blaze ahead and they'll they'll come around when they come around if ever all right next we'll thing oh do you want to make one point no we'll see well hopefully no, we'll you know uh, these markets start to coalesce in some way where we see uh coins being used every day in real life yeah, you just got to be um, and, undeniable. Uh, that, that, that's the hope. Yeah, yeah, it's up to us to kind of chump that bar. As difficult as it is, we just got to get it done. So here's community comment of the week. CZ from Binance yet again. Uh, he comes up with some crackers on Twitter, doesn't he? But he said, quote, during the last all-time high, new people were marveling at OGs who got in early and held on. This is what it feels like the other half of the time. Your actions now determine what you'll feel like during the next all-time high, not financial advice, end quote. So basically with Celsius melting down and everything going to shit, he's just kind of giving people their heads up. And that's good that it's 100% true that, yeah, everybody likes to say, oh, these people who got in early, they were just killing it and they were super cool and they survived this volatility or they were lucky or however they frame it. But the reality of the matter is you don't get to be up 900 percent if you weren't down 90 percent and that that you know it's often a long slow painful uh situation to sort of that's where hodling came from in the first place right uh so everybody and i think it was also just noteworthy got retweeted by rolando bryson who's uh driving you know some of the adoption in saint martin and i just thought that was very healthy to see that even if things are going downhill in the short term a little bit, he he's prepared to stick with it and get it through to the other side. Because if it does push through and, you know, the price picks up momentum kind of picks up like it always does cyclically in crypto, then there'll be a huge payoff, but it wouldn't ever come about if it was like you get halfway into it and then you sort of flake out, you kind of need to be in mm-hmm. it for the long run. Right now it's a huge opportunity, right? Anytime there's a market crash is a huge opportunity. So market crash means that the deflate it deflates all the crypto assets, right? We watched yeah. across the board as everything just gets fucking nuked. Okay, well the plus side is is that some of those projects are good. Some of those projects in that you know in the crypto sphere are worth investing in, and those will be at rock bottom prices. And if you pick the right stuff in these types of markets as to what has good fundamentals. What's going to, you know, be that um, part of the next wave of coins that make a difference? Then there's huge money-making opportunities at these points in time. Um, and yeah, the problem is is that a lot of people can't get in because they just got wiped out. That's the <laughs> other part of this that don't that they don't like. But like the to irony, mention, yeah. is a lot of people got in too high, they got wiped out. They don't have any capital. They don't have any capital to put in right now, and that's why it's an opportunity for those that do. So to me. Keep a good look on the market. If it keeps bleeding out like this, grabbing 10 grand and trying to pick up some of the coins you believe in, it's not a bad plan when the prices are super low. And that's how people make their real money. 
If you look at the last drop, like just for BCH, right after the eCash split, I think it went down as low as like 80 bucks or something crazy, right? And we had a moment, we were at 1400. Yeah. That's the, the, those 14 X gains pretty nice you know now that's if you pick your times perfectly yeah, yeah, but yeah. when you buy at all time lows like this like obviously once this shakedown happens things are going to be really low wait for a little bit of a plateau get into the coins that you think are going to recover there's a chance to make several hundred percent on your money not financial advice yeah none of this is financial advice this is just you know morons with uh a little bit of uh, experience, possibly <laughs> informing informing their ideas. That said, you know, I could, I definitely could have been better. I've got a little bit of uh, dry powder, but I, I probably could have been a bit, bit, bit better about that. But well, it's know, hard to guess because it's, it's been like things have been going down for a little bit, and it's like, do you spend the dry powder now? It's like, when do you catch the knife? Right? It's been yeah, it's been a, been a bit of dollar cost averaging, so it's all it's all good. I'm that's going to work out. I'm not I'm not stressed. It's just about yeah, being there. Again, in 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 two or three years, just we're here now, going to be there. See you, <laughs> see you then for the all time high. All right, and meme of the week this week comes from Bitcoin Jason. His TikTok feed at Crypto Lifestyles. I hope Jet can just play this uh, clip. It's not really publicly available anywhere. Uh, it was only just posted on his Instagram story, and I uh, snagged it. Off there, I don't know if Jet can. Uh... Yeah, so I'm just curious, are there Ethereum cars anywhere? Like I've seen a lot of Bitcoin <laughs> Cash yeah. cars. I've never seen another crypto car except for like an F1 or like you know the the pro racing. They do NASCAR? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I don't. I haven't really. You're right. It's in Townsville, and it's obviously also in the Caribbean. These mm -hmm. uh, wrapped uh, BCH. I think Sonny was even doing it in India as well too. So mm -hmm. it's around the place. But anyway, this meme is, uh, if Jack can get it lined up, but it's just this oh, guy who's out for a run yeah. in Australia. <laughs> yeah, this, for an uh, afternoon run, beautiful day on my socks, beautiful sock. Oh, it's a Bitcoin cash guy. Hey, how you going? Hey, good, mate. So, hey, for Danny. Yeah, bro, yeah. You're running. You got your socks on it. Ah, oh, mate, they're everything. Thank you for the support, eh? No worries. Oi, try some up so I can buy some up. Yeah, sweet. That'd be awesome, mate. Catch you later. Yeah, catch you, mate. What a legend! Absolute great guy, big heart. Basically, it's just it's just this uh, Australian guy is out for a run, and in a typical sort of Australian fashion, it's a bit sort of like no context. He's like, "I'm out for a run," and he's got these like ridiculous socks on, but no shoes or something, and he's on the side of the road, and he's just I don't know what he was even doing. Like this doesn't seem staged. It's like he's just like, "I'm out for a run." And then somehow Bitcoin Jason just rocks up behind him in this Bitcoin cash car. And he he obviously knows him because he must be known around town. Oh, it's the Bitcoin cash guy. And then Jason's like leaning out the window. Oh, g'day, mate. And they have this kind of weird conversation, uh, you know, as you do in passing while one person's in a car and the other one isn't. And it's like Bitcoin cash getting this weird advertising and then and then he just finishes up by saying oh that's a great bloke you know i already see him around and everything and it's just it just when i saw that it just made me laugh so hard like i don't this is that's what connects with people just those small moments you know that real life known for yeah real life exactly not this speculate like that just i'm sure that clip will be you know going viral people will be seeing that and laughing and it just makes the community so much more approachable good vibes exactly barlow 
uh yeah in the chat exactly good vibes exactly we just go spread those good vibes in the community so bitcoin jane such a genuine guy i saw he was commenting in the chat as well before i might have gone to bed i don't know what time it is there but uh yeah you know just uh good stuff mate keep 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 up the good work because it's just brilliant and that brings us to uh message the community last segment as always your chance to tell the community what do they need to hear what do we need in bitcoin cash um Oh, that's that. That's it's taller. So one thing I, I guess I'll um, say I would like some additional assistance on BitcoinCash.org. Uh, I have some translations that need to get done. So if you watch this and you want to help translate for other languages, help get more content on BitcoinCash.org, I am looking for a lot of people to help with that kind of content. That is the number one result when someone searches for Bitcoin Cash. That is what comes up. So it, it, is, it behooves all of us to make sure that that property is maintained well and has the latest information available. So that's definitely something that needs to happen. Also, never give up trying to get more people to use it, right? So like, I love the merchant adoption efforts. I love being able to make sure that we have good tooling and growing the ecosystem in the places that need uh, electronic payments that don't have them. So that's what makes me so excited about the Caribbean is they don't have the infrastructure. They're using crypto because they need the infrastructure. They want the, the wallets. They want the, the apps. They don't have Venmo. They don't have PayPal. They don't have the stuff that we have here in the US or in Australia. And so th those areas of the world, I think, are where it naturally does kickstart payments happening is because, well, they don't have other alternatives and they don't want to only use cash. So I'm looking forward to get, seeing more adoption efforts on that front. And as I said earlier, always looking for more developers to help on BCHD and Neutrino and BCH Wallet. And so if you are interested in any of those things, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm ZQuezia on Twitter. And um, one other thing is remember that we need to be inclusive about the people in the community. It's one thing to not invite you know, developers that were callous about Bitcoin Cash to be prominent figures in our community again. That I can understand. People get hurt and they don't want those people back. But we need to be inviting for anyone that wants to use Bitcoin Cash as money. It's not an elitist club. It isn't the cool guy club. It's nothing. It's just money. It's a way for people to transact value. And we need more of that and less clicks, right? And I understand that it's nice to think that we're like this crypto family or crypto community. In reality, we need to get past that and start looking at it as a tool that helps our life. And understand that people other than us should want to use that tool as well, because that may benefit their life in a different way. And we sh should be really inviting anyone to be able to use our chain and try to stay away from some of the politics and um, make sure that it's always open for everyone, right? There's no censorship here. Anybody can use BCH at any time. They can use the wallets. No one's going to say be told that they can't use it. Um, but we need to be inviting to people. There are a lot of people in the space that change their opinions over time. And there are a lot of play, uh, people that um, we want to get to make their first Bitcoin Cash transaction. And we need to be more open and inclusive for those people. They may have been using shit coins in the past. They may have been using coins that were totally garbage or whatever, or go into RBTC and ask the dumbest questions in the world. But that doesn't mean that they're malicious. And we have to be able to differentiate between those that are actively trying to spread FUD and hurt our community. And people that just don't know any better that are trying to get involved. 
And that line is really hard to detect sometimes. So just try to be a little bit more patient, a little bit more accepting for people that are getting into the community. Try to help people get started a little bit more and be a little less pessimistic that they're out to hurt us. Yeah, I've, yeah, just want to yeah double down and echo that because that's exa that's exactly it. It can be hard. Uh, I know I see results too. It's the fiftieth person this week who has the same question that's been answered a hundred times and has never heard of the search function, right? And the worst is that you just try and be nice to them every time, and then once you're four replies deep in the comment chain, you're like, "This guy's just out to waste my time. He doesn't actually want an answer." But a lot of the times, they do actually just want an answer. You give them an answer, and that's it. And they just you never hear from them again. And they just find all the information, and they go on to have a great time in the community. And so, yeah, we should definitely you want to err on that side right it's better to to make sure all the new users get a good experience and then once in a while you get a bit annoyed because you get trolled rather than you push people away assuming they're all trolls that's not the exactly not the and there it. are a lot of people that are multi-coiners and that's totally fine you know like we need to be able to check our egos at the door a little bit and be able to invite people and just say hey bitcoin cash is for money right we're not saying it does everything your other coins do yeah we're, we're, we're designing this for money and you're invited to come use it as money and go ahead and use your Ethereum and other chains and whatever else you want to use too. But those don't make as good of money and we should be open instead of being critical and constantly thinking that people need to just be educated on why BCH is the best. Just let them use it for what it's good for and let them discover what it's good for. And it doesn't have to be perfect for everything that they're doing in the space. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that will do it the show oof, nearly three hours this has been one of the wow this was the a biggest long episode one. yeah there you go that's it 50 episodes i hope uh hope everybody's been enjoying it so as usual you can hit up the uh donations uh there's a qr code on the slides thank you very much to everyone who donates i really appreciate it you can check out all the slides and information at bitcoincashpodcast.com shout out to my patreon uh, Ricky and yeah, final shout outs and uh, shilling opportunity, Josh. So people can find you on Twitter, I guess, like you said uh, before. Do you have anywhere else that's good to contact uh, you yeah, or follow you your stuff? Yeah, you can find me on IRC. Um, uh, and I'm on IRC a lot on multiple networks and then Twitter, Reddit. I'm all over. My social media profile is uh, I sign up for pretty much everything. Mm. So I, I, I'm around. You can find me. Um, but definitely check out Clementine's Nightmare if you're interested in games and you want to see what we're working on. We're spending a lot of effort making sure that that's going to be successful and uh, always excited to talk crypto. So thanks for having me on, Jeremy. No, no, it's been great. Jet, any uh, shout outs this week? Nope, nothing. And for me, yeah, shout <laughs> out gonna... to all the listeners. That's it. 50 episodes it's been been a ride but the you know lindy effect we've hit 50 so now we're now at better than even odds we're going to hit 100 so that's my uh pledge to the listeners make it to 100 and stay uh stay stay safe in the in the bear markets right just remember it's it's all just it's all just crypto just sometimes if you need to just take a break a week or whatever just stop checking the price charts go out live your life I don't know, go for a run, see your mates, say hi to your family, just switch it off if it's getting you down because it'll still be here when you get back. Yeah. All right, that's it. And uh, thanks, everyone. Till next time. All right, so we're back on.
Bitcoin is just at $21,009. And just as we finished the stream, obviously we were doing, we were just chatting away. We had the topics and turns out while we were live on air, MicroStrategy has been liquidated, sending the crypto markets even further into the red Bitcoin cash now. Well, $120 is actually holding up better than, uh, better than some of these other ones. That's for sure. <laughs> uh carnage in the markets everything everything way down and i don't know i guess josh you've been looking at the twitter bit what's what's going on i mean uh and bitcoin's price went under 21k that caused the first round of liquidations it looks like they got liquidated for 100 million is uh, what i'm seeing right now 103 million um so we're gonna see uh but that happened just a few minutes ago so now we're going to see what the ramifications of that is. Um, I assume that should be pr- pushing the price down further, but it hasn't. Yeah, Bitcoin's Where's down. Where's Sailor's tweet? Well, he's got, he hasn't tweeted yet. What's going on? The people want to know. What's uh, <laughs> HQ is just a disaster at MicroStrategy. <laughs> Probably like they're trying to avoid. Oh, we're all going to go to jail, guys! Like <laughs> quick. Uh, the SEC was uh, no, uh, that was a troll tweet. I think someone made about. Oh, the SEC starts investigating uh, Michael Saylor, but maybe not too far from reality. Uh, that you know they would uh, get involved. It's live, uh, live drama in Bitcoin. We trust. 14 hours ago, Michael Saylor. These guys just make it too easy. Well, I yeah. mean, he, he did this new profile picture, but isn't the joke that it's the exact same as the previous one? So I thought that was the joke, right? And so MicroStrategy, according to one source, is uh, down over a billion dollars. on their Holy shit. Because just at the moment, it's like MicroStrategy and the El Salvadorian government are just going bankrupt in real time with the whole world. I feel so bad for the people that just live in El Salvador. Like, not only for uh, garbage government, but the fact that that garbage government was like, yeah, we're going to gamble with your money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. YOLO it all on uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, no, Inflation hasn't peaked and neither has Bitcoin. Michael Saylor, you t- all this stuff just ages so badly. All these Wait. price takes and whatever. So, so how? What do you think is the price target we might need to get for like Tether to actually fucking implode? I don't know. Maybe don't know like sub ten k. Maybe like. Well, I don't think BTC would hit sub ten k unless Tether's wiped out first. But I think if we do, then it could be an easy five k, six k. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Dude, I, people I are going to be like jumping off buildings if they bought Bitcoin at 70 grand, at like store of value. And then it's five, five grand, you know, like that's going to be that's going to be like suicide territory. Seriously. Yeah, I'm really curious what the market does now. Um, I think that's it's a good buying opportunity for a lot of people real soon. But uh, hold out a little bit. There's probably a little bit more left in the tank uh, of the disaster yeah. mode, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, now, the question yeah, is, the how, how low will Bitcoin actually go? And Ethereum, is Ethereum going to go like under a grand? You know, are we going to see $800 yeah. Ethereum? Are we going to see less People than that? People are predicting that. I think, I think it probably, I feel like Ethereum would be overvalued at $800. I mean, I'm, yeah, I would say what... 400 to 600 maybe reasonable <laughs> maybe even 300 i don't no, know like crazy. just the whole I, like it's like from ethereum went from 
$110 in March of 2020 up to four thousand, nearly $5,000 in November 2021. <laughs> we're we playing the intro music here. Let's get that going as well, too. I'm just trying to find... Do you guys have a link to... Oh, wait. This Is it the Crypto Whale tweet? Uh, yeah, Crypto Whale tweeted about it. There's a few other people as well. If you just search for MicroStrategy on Twitter, it's a pretty in, uh, funny stream. Where's uh, Where's Peter Schiff at? He's going to be having a blast. It's like Christmas for him, for sure. Oh, I, see I, mean, I just feel bad for everybody that's working at MicroStrategy. Like, their company might not exist. Well, it was always a scam, right? MicroStrategy yeah. liquidated. Look, oh, he's made a tweet with like a red background. It looks pretty yeah. ominous. That's pretty <laughs> like, it's over, guys. Shut it down. <laughs> it's like the nukes have been launched, you know, the red doomsday. Nearly 103 million worth of MicroStrategies has been liquidated. Massive BTC sell-off. But there's a lot of it left to liquidate, right? That wouldn't have been the whole like. No, no, that's not nearly. Thing. I think that there's a bunch that's, of tiers. It's gonna. Well, we're we gonna see. Is it gonna cascade down? Is everybody gonna just uh, throw in the towel? Yeah, ETH is looking pretty disastrous too. It's just a straight line down at this point, pretty much. Yeah, no, these. Uh, it is not a good time. It is not a good time. <laughs> have you guys seen the thing that was like, oh well, uh, I'm just reading this. Uh, like this whole thread was like, oh, this is just FUD, yada, yada. Sailor oh, put out a tweet fun. on May 10th that said, uh, if the price of BTC falls below 3500 then the company can post some collateral. But aside from that, not They're a problem. Good. I don't really believe that. How many fucking loans and whatever does he have? If it was under 3500 so it's still like, this was like the minor the minor leagues and he's still going to go down another what 80 percent from here and then he'll be like then we'll just we'll just get some extra loans there's got to be some repercussions for all this at some point oh surely not oh oh we're sub 20k right no 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 it's no not yet it's 21 21 21 uh, two now son of a bitch uh, micro strategy stock just went down by 25 (laughs) percent. i just found a tweet that's nothing to fear here you'll never see sub 20k btc ever again and i wanted to retweet that (laughs) will clemente or whoever those like on-chain analysts like we're never going back down never make one of those tweets you're just setting yourself up to absolutely get roasted There's you don't no... control the market you know so bitcoin always finds a way all right well maybe that's our extra little segment there a little bonus because it's actually late i gotta go to bed but uh... yep sounds good and thank you for having me on and uh yeah this was fun that's it i'll do it again sometime all right see you later everyone stay bye, safe everybody. ever known the rise and rise of bitcoin 2022 a single chance for the world a single moment in time bankers captures all our cryptocurrency flies gets to decide phoenix fly from the flame bitcoin bch forever changing the game 
an underdog story everyone trying to deny Bitcoin revolution, crypto trade on the rise Then they stole our brand name and tried to push us aside Cause they said it was over, that we'd never survive Maybe there was a world that was the end of the ride But this kind of hero's journey is refusing to die So we picked up the shovels and headed back to the mine Started over from scratch, finding fresh dynamite Flipping over the board, drew up fresh